Hello everyone, welcome to another special bonus episode on Saturday of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. Today I'm going to share with you a live discussion that I did recently on Standing for Truth channel. It wasn't really a debate, but it was more of a discussion about the Matthew 25 parables. These are some very misunderstood parables. And so I was joining this discussion with Charles Jennings, who kind of gave his opinion as somebody who considers himself dispensational and and pre-trib. And then I gave my beliefs about these parables. And so I think you'll find this discussion interesting. So I hope you'll enjoy it. If you would like to know more about these uh, parables, I will also leave links to the sermons I preached on these not that long ago. And I believe it will be a help to you. So thank you all for watching this. God bless. All right, looks like we are live, and I want to welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie, and I am your host for tonight's Two Views event on the Matthew 25 parables. I am excited to see what Charles Jennings and Pastor Tommy McMurtry are going to bring to the table tonight in terms of these parables. Now, before I go over tonight's specific format, let's get acquainted with our guests for anybody who might be unfamiliar with Tommy or Charles. Charles, why don't we start with you? As I think it's been a few weeks or so since you've been on the show. And so Charles, how have you been? A little bit about yourself and also a little bit about the Layman Seminary. Yeah, um, I'm doing all right. Uh, so basically, the Layman Seminary is a uh, mission statement is teaching Christians how to study and share their Bible with others. I am a seminary student. And so this is a good opportunity for peer review, you know, informal peer review examination of my ideas and articulations and uh, critiquing those within my camp and those without, you know, to come to the best view that has the greatest explanatory power and so i'm grateful for this opportunity and my wife janet is in the chat de uh debating or should we say discussion for this debate because it's not really a debate uh a two view thing so i'm sure janet's sharing her view over there god bless god bless i appreciate that charles i've got your channel linked in the description box janet if you're in the chat good to see you uh pastor tommy mcmurtry you're a busy man this week you've been doing a lot of recordings for the spirit of prophecy podcast i do want to uh, recommend everybody in the audience to go over there and subscribe you're putting out some great content and discussions and also this is your second time here uh this week so tommy i appreciate your time and for the audience, a little bit about yourself and, and a little bit about your uh, your church. Oh, I think you're on mute. Let me see if oh. <clears throat> oh, you're good now. Okay. Yeah. My name is Pastor Tommy McMurtry. I pastor Liberty Baptist Church. Been pastoring here for almost 12 years. I was assistant pastor in LaSalle, Illinois at Lighthouse Baptist for about 10 years before that. And um, I married uh, to Cassandra been married for 22 years yeah 22 years I have eight children and uh, got I am going to become becoming a father-in-law next month so excited about that and um, getting ready to become a father-in-law and I'm just getting one out of diapers at the same time too so of course we've got a busy household but I love doing these discussions I love talking about uh, theology the bible prophecy and um yeah and if you go check out my 
uh, Spirit of Liberty podcast. This next week is going to be epic. I've been recording all week and I've recorded some really good interviews this week that I just can't wait to uh, release. It's going to be really good. Awesome. I appreciate uh, the introduction, Pastor Tommy, and also thank you, Charles. Uh, here are the links to uh, Tommy's YouTube channels, including the Spirit of Prophecy. Charles, your link is in the description box as well. And Tommy and Charles are no strangers to uh, this channel and discussions on this channel. So if you search it, you'll find many past discussions with them. And so with that, I do want to briefly go over the format. So tonight we are discussing three parables, specifically the Matthew 25 parables, the parable of the talents, parable of the 10 virgins and the parable of the sheep and goats. Lots of differing uh, opinions, controversial uh, parables for sure. And so both guests tonight in our two views event, they'll be taking very different approaches to interpreting these parables. Uh, Pastor Tommy taking more of a non-dispensational approach, Charles more of a dispensational approach. Now what we're going to be doing is focusing on one parable at a time. And so Charles will be kicking us off for each round with 10 minutes. So Charles will get 10 minutes to go over his view of each parable. Pastor Tommy gets 10 minutes. Then we'll have just a little bit of back and forth, maybe 10, 15 minutes, I would say max, on each parable where they can ask each other questions and kind of just discuss the points brought up. Then we'll move on to parable two. We'll do the same thing. Parable three, same thing. As the event is taking place, I will be saving audience questions. And so once we've uh, gone through each parable, I will begin incorporating audience questions. So please, if you do have a question, uh, tag me at Standing for Truth, and that way I won't miss it. Okay, with that, we're just going to get right into parable number one, and that is the parable of the talents. And so, Charles, whenever you're ready, just let me know if you need a screen share or anything like that. I am happy to put those up on the screen as well, and I see it coming in. And you've got, I think you're on mute, Charles. Let me, it looks like you're muted on your end. Sorry. That's okay. Whenever you're good to go, this is the first round, gentlemen. Charles, you get 10 minutes. Floor is yours. Yeah, so I'm thankful that I'm going to be discussing with a, another free gracer. And uh, so that's great. Typically, whenever I approach a parable, one of the questions I always ask is, does this passage refer to a master service relationship? If so, I view that related to sanctification typically, or is it talking about salvation? Uh, as most people know, typically I try to uncover the times that exper experiential sanctification is used in the Bible. So I favor that view over positional truth in a lot of places. Uh, those are some of the resources that I went to in my research for this debate prep or a discussion. And so the easiest way for me to do this is I've just made some brief observation sheets on the text. And let me just walk you through. And shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten versions. So because I'm a dispensationalist and I have a particular view of the kingdom, I believe the kingdom of heaven refers to the Messianic millennial kingdom. The same kingdom that Jesus Christ was offering to Israel but they rejected it and therefore they've been temporarily set aside and that they will receive it in the future whenever they receive the Messiah in salvation. Okay. So then we see the 10 versions. 
because of this idea that the bridegroom is absent during this time based on other passages, it makes sense in this parable to view the the uh, bridegroom, I mean, the, the virgins as some type of tribulation saints. In particular, they may even be Israel. So I see that. Now, the question about the lamps, I'm just leaving at a question mark for right now as we develop that. And as I said, the bridegroom is Jesus. I think we both agree on that. Okay. <clears throat> My throat is dry. I choked on a piece of hot dog right before we began. Um, but anyway, so it says, and they went forth to meet the bridegroom. I would say this is at the seven, at the end of the seven years. I'm not going to call it seven year tribulation because some people don't like that term. And then, so five were wise. I take the wise to refer to the fact that they're pre prepared experientially and that the ones that are foolish are not prepared. I don't take the view that prepared means saved and not saved. I think it goes deeper than that. Uh, far as about the vessels, uh, both of them had oil. The difference is, is that the wise ones had extra oil. So they had extra clips. You know, they were ready. They were prepared. All right. So what you see here is that in verse 7, all the versions arose and trimmed their lamps. So all of them went, went to meet him, you know, but the but the foolish were the ones that didn't have enough oil. So, uh, so it, what's interesting is that even these foolish ones, they still went to try to buy the oil. But by the time they got back, the door was shut. You know, they lost that opportunity. So we get to this part where they're banging on the door, basically, or knocking on the door. And they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily, verily, I say to you, I know you not. Now, this passage is similar to Matthew 7.23, except the word where I never knew you is used there as gnosko. And in this passage, it's oida. I personally think there's a lot of, uh, they're synonymous in a lot of ways. There's a lot of semantic overlap with that. And so I'm, now keep in mind, I view Matthew 7.23 as not a positional passage but experiential. I take Gnosko to refer to that Jesus does not commend their ministry or approve of their ministry. So we could go into detail about that. Then in 13, when we're getting to the application of the parable, it's rhetorical force. It says, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh. So the ye, I would say, are the disciples. Now the disciples are the representative of the nation of Israel, and they are also the ones that are going to establish the church. Me being a dispensationalist, even though Matthew's written during the church age, it's written about a time underneath the Mosaic law when the kingdom was being offered to Israel. So in my view, the uh, the metaphorical body of Christ did not exist at this time, but yet the representatives did. And so Jesus prepares them for that future establishment in certain texts. And so this idea about I, I know you not, it possibly can have this idea of I don't honor you. It's used in Ignatius. Uh, Dillo brings out that, that it can be used that way. And there's a passage in the, the New Testament that uses it in that way as well. So the thing is, uh, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour where the Son of Man cometh. So they don't, the virgins did not know when the, the, the groom would come, you know, come uh, and all of that. So the idea being is that, uh, like the virgins, he's telling the, the disciples that they need to be ready. So we can see application there. And then that's really it as uh, far as that parable. How much time do I have left, SOT? Uh, you just hit the five minute and 10 second mark. 
All right, great. I'm going to do some freestyling. So one of the issues, and I got to deal with my presuppositions here, is because I take the view that kingdom of heaven refers to the Messianic Millennial Kingdom, uh, then I have to argue that this passage is talking about the kingdom. Another presupposition is if I believe that the church and Israel are distinct based on Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, that it didn't exist in the Old Testament according to that reading, that's another presupposition that's driving my text. Now, I believe that each one of those presuppositions is inductively driven from the study of those words and things like that. Now, am I prepared to, to examine all that in this debate? Probably not, but I'm just being honest with my presuppositions. Because when you're doing inductive study, you got to be aware of those things. And this is interesting because Jody Dillo, one of the free grace proponents, he actually argues that the virgins are the church, or at least believers of, of from the church and in the tribulation. The problem with that is that he has to take a different view of the kingdom where he has different aspects of the kingdom in place. And so you kind of have this already not yet thing. And if I'm to be consistent, then I would have to argue that the kingdom was never put into place. Now, I'm aware of other passages that seem to indicate a kingdom in existence. Sometimes it deals with the eternal kingdom of God being sovereign over everything. That's eternal. But then you have the temporal meditorial kingdom, which uh, in its theocracy form was what Israel was operating under and, and then will operate under the Messianic Millennial Kingdom. So those are my presuppositions there. Now, as I was in preparation for this, I studied the International Society of Biblical Hermeneutics presentation by a peer of mine concerning the interpretation of the parables and things like that. And he took the view that these are unbelievers, that the wise are, are positionally wise and that the foolish are not saved. And he related it to Psalms 14 and, and he even went to the eschatology and all that. I'm not sure I see that because I could see how the word wise and foolish can be used for believers and unbelievers. So I, I don't think I want to just read all that in. Uh, I feel like that that's more Matthew 24 driving everything in Matthew 25. Now, there is a connection and there is another parable that's mentioned there. Another thing that I want is mentioned that's interesting is Jello believes that there's two banquets. There's the marriage banquet and then there's a the messianic banquet. As I've been looking at this text, I think that... Uh, I can't necessarily prove that there's a marriage banquet. So if it's a marriage banquet, then that's the idea of the judgment seat of Christ that happens in my pre-trib presupposition whenever the church has been removed and those things that happen at that time. And then there's the messianic banquet is whenever, uh, you know, we have our glorified bodies. We're there with the Old, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints and now the millennial saints and they're dining with Abraham and, and all of that type of imagery right there. So those are some of the things that uh, are affecting my interpretation and how I view it. My concern is, is that when you come to these passages, is that it, it almost feels like, okay, do I be dispensational first or do I be a free, free grace first? Well, I emphasize free grace more than dispensationalism. But I believe that dispensationalism is a hermeneutic, a method, and a theology. And so I believe that you can see free grace most consistent within dispensationalism but at the same time, I know that not everybody are dispensationalists and free grace, I believe, is the implication of the gospel. And so therefore, I form alliances with people like SFT who are not dispensational, who are not pre-trib, but yet uh, promote free grace. And that's the same thing with Pastor Tommy Murchie. 
So I welcome for this discussion. I really don't, I'm really open to other options. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think that there's a smoking gun in this passage, this particular parable that, that makes me lean one way or another. I think it's decisions that we make from other texts that affect that. And uh, uh, I think that we can explore that. If it's okay, SFT, I'd like to yield my time right now. Yeah, no, no problem. That's basically 10 minutes anyways. So uh, we'll, we'll say 10 minutes max, not that you uh, brothers need to utilize the full 10. So, okay, thank you very much, Charles, to the audience. Uh, the questions that have come in already, I've got them saved, so I do appreciate it. Okay, Pastor Tommy McMurtry, you now have your uh, 10 minutes for our first parable of the night. Go ahead. So we're doing the virgins then, right? Yes. And, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I understand what dispensationalists are trying to do when they look at these parables. I understand that, um, you know, the crucifixion hasn't taken place yet. But unfortunately, dispensationalism, they do things wrong in their attempt to make sense of everything. And so hopefully uh, I can briefly set this up, how to interpret this passage what you have to understand about these Olivet discourse parables is the context of them begins in Matthew chapter 21 and at the triumphal entry of Christ and now I'm going to make some big claims as I go through this and uh Charles if you want to uh, get you need me to clarify those if you doubt them later I'm fine with doing that uh, I don't have time to uh, go through everything but the triumphal entry was the coming of christ that was a key event in the coming of christ that was the day of his visitation this was a day that was prophesied in malachi and zechariah and isaiah and i'm sure we'll get to some of those prophecies that was the time of that was his coming when he came he was not happy with what he found he was he drove people out of the temple this was malachi 3 being fulfilled behold i will send my messenger he shall prepare the way before me and the lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight and behold he shall come saith the lord but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth for he is like a finer's fire and fuller soap and i won't go through all that but they were not acceptable they did not do what the prophets told them to do jesus drove them out and he quotes isaiah 56 that i hope we have time to get into later that is a very key passage. Israel had not done what the prophets had told them to do. They were not ready for the coming of Christ. They had not been a light to the world. They did not have people from all nations like they were supposed to. And even they themselves were not saved. They were shutting people out of the kingdom while they weren't even going in themselves. And, and Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. He goes on in verse 14 of Matthew 21, starts healing people taking care of outcasts like they were supposed to do, but they didn't do And uh, from Isaiah 56. And then in Matthew 21, he goes and he he's hungry. He's looking for fruit on the fig tree. There was none. So he cursed that fig tree that without a doubt represents Israel, said, let no fruit grow in thee henceforward forever. And then he goes and gives them some more parables that help set all these things up. And, and then in, in chapter 22, he gives some parable about the wedding guest. But all of these things were directed at a very specific people during a very specific time. One who judgment was going to be coming on if they did not accept Jesus as Messiah. So chapter 23, he's speaking to the multitude and his disciples. And Jesus rips on the Pharisees like nobody's business. Ends, the, ends his ripping on them by saying that on them, 
is going to come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the son of blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come on this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, now that kills the prophets and stones them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, like the people in Matthew 21 did, that the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for them saying it. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They needed to get on board with what the others were saying. And so now, Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples want clarification about the things he has pronounced in the previous chapters, about the things coming on Jerusalem, and about his return. And Jesus proceeded to tell them those things. And so, Without going into Matthew 24, when we get to Matthew chapter 25, or and we get to the uh, parable of the ten virgins, let me just briefly uh, try to tell you what uh, what this is, and then uh, uh, if there's any challenges at that, uh, we can address those things. But when it says the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, Christ at his coming in the first century was looking for a virgin bride. He didn't find one. Uh, he showed up, the bridegroom had showed up three years earlier, was presented to Israel by John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ, but I, that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And Jesus mentioned in Matthew 9, how when uh, it was question why his disciples didn't fast, the children of the bride chamber don't need to mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then shall they fast. And so the physical nation of Israel, they were not worthy to be the bride of Christ because of the filthiness of their sin. They were not able to cleanse themselves through the things of the law. And, and so uh, they were not what uh, he was looking for. He goes on to say um, in, let's let's jump down to uh, verse, I've got a lot of papers here. Most of this stuff I have here is backing up what I'm going to say. All right, there we go. So then it says, uh, and five of them were wise, five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Now, we don't need to figure out who the wise and who the foolish are. A lot of people make the mistake of trying to insert things in here they don't need to insert. It says, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. Now, what is the purpose of the oil? Well, the purpose of oil is to keep a light shining. Israel failed to keep their oil keep the lamp lit. Just like Eli, they let the lamp of God go out and Israel had failed to be a light to the world like they had been commanded. People were supposed to be coming from all over the world to Jerusalem. They were supposed to uh, they were supposed to be a light to the nations and they failed because they had no oil in their lamp. They had not done the service that God had called them to do. And so when the bridegroom came, uh, it says, then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. 
But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go ye rather them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know ye not. And here's the warning. Watch, therefore, for ye know not neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now, here's what we need to understand about this. There is, we need to focus more on the interpretation of a passage rather than the application. Without a doubt, there are applications that we can make as New Testament Christians when it comes to this parable. There's applications we can make to the second coming of Christ. But we need to understand that Matthew 25, the interpretation of it, when Jesus spoke this parable, this was a parable directed at Israel that was not ready. He was, and he was uh, warning them to be ready. He was likening them unto these virgins who were not ready for the bridegroom when they came because they had no oil in their lamps. And so uh, when the bridegroom came, he did not take them. And you know what? When Jesus Christ came, he did not uh, physically deliver Israel at that time. They weren't ready. They didn't have people from all nations. They were dirty. They were unacceptable. And so uh, this parable is a rebuke against Israel for their failure to do the job that God had given them to do. And I know that very thing brings up a lot of objections, but most of the objections that people are, that are going to come up are going to be about making this fit with applications that they make with this passage. But no, I'm focusing on the interpretation of it. It was directed at Israel who had failed in their ministry that had been given to them before. And when the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. Now, I, I we can make application to New Testament Christians, to the second coming of Christ. It's not wrong to do that. But if we fail to understand the interpretation of this passage, it will confuse people when it comes to the things of salvation. And often people use this to teach you can lose your salvation, which is ridiculous because Israel was not able to be a light. They were not able to be clean. They, they weren't able to do those things because, yeah, they didn't have any oil in their lamp. We will do all those things. We will be clean. We will be a light to the world because we do have an oil in our lamp. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's because we are saved. And so all the things that Israel failed to accomplish through the law, uh, there's New Testament verses too, showing we will accomplish these things at Christ's second coming. There's a famous question people always ask. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Is that about that century or the future? It's both. The answer to the first century is no, he didn't find it. The answer in the in his second coming, yes, he will find it. Pastor Tommy, thank you for that 10-minute, those 10-minute opening arguments on the parable of the virgins. And so Charles and Tommy, thank you very much. Why don't we now jump into roughly 10 minutes of free-flowing discussion on the points made during these uh, two statements. Charles, since uh, Tommy just ended with his, why don't we allow you to pick uh, the first point or maybe ask a first question that, that you think would be uh, good. Just make sure to unmute and you're, yeah, you're good to go. 
yeah, Pastor Mamurchi, I appreciate that you went back into all the details. I have a couple questions and you can tell me which ones you want to answer in order, which ones you want to emphasize. I know we can't get to all of them, mm -hmm. but I would like to ask you, uh, how do you understand uh, blessed uh, your house is left to you desolate until you, they, I'm paraphrasing until mm -hmm. they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's one question. The other question is uh, concerning the law. Do you believe that people were able to be saved underneath the law? And do you believe that there was enablement underneath the law? The next question is, whenever John the Baptist is using the language of the bridegroom, I, I saw the idea of rejoicing or not rejoicing, that idea there, but he was offering a king to Israel. And I know we differ on the kingdom in that aspect of things, but... Uh, I think that's important because I, I still see the same kingdom that John was preparing for mentioned in Matthew 25. Mm -hmm. The other thing is you didn't explicitly talk about it, but Charles, I'll, let you I'm, I'll, Charles I'll stop you there. I feel like you asked a few questions, which is okay. Oh, sorry. And then sorry. a few points. Since we have 10 minutes, I definitely want to make sure we're taking one topic at a time. So let's okay. throw it uh, to Tommy now and feel free to respond. Um. Yeah. So that, yeah, you, you threw a lot at me there. I'm trying Sorry. to think of where it would be best to start. Um, what was that first part of the question? Oh, the, uh, the, until yeah. you say, yeah. Until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. I don't see that as a prophetic statement where Jesus is saying, uh, you know, like promising another appearing to them in the future after they say that, like if you, one of these days y'all are going to say this and I'm going to show up. No, I think he's just letting them know this is the last time. I'm, I'm speaking to you until or unless you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The same thing that people had said in uh, Matthew chapter 21 at the triumphal entry, which was a fulfillment of prophecy from uh, from one of the Psalms. That was, uh, you know, that was a prophecy being fulfilled. So um, I don't see that. And as far as the kingdom goes, um, you know, here's. Here, there's a couple of ways we can look at the kingdom. First off, the kingdom, you could say it is a ministry uh, that we have. And obviously that ministry is to be a light to the world. And a kingdom is nothing without people. Israel was supposed to be building the kingdom of God. They were supposed to be including other people. In Isaiah 56, says, Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. These are people that would have been excluded at one time. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. There's eternal security right there. Um, in my last debate, we had, you know, we had, uh, we were debating on whether or not the nation of Israel had eternal security. No, they did not. Uh, but those of faith do have eternal security. It says uh, also the sons of the stranger that join himself to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taking hold of my covenant, 
even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house should be called an house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. Right there, Jesus referred to that prophecy that was about his coming. I briefly mentioned in Malachi chapter 3 when he, when it prophesied of John the Baptist, will prepare the day of the Lord. Who may abide the day of his coming? He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap, and he will purify the sons of Levi. And they will offer up an accept, acceptable sacrifice like in the days of old. So here's what we have to understand about Old Testament prophecies is that there were contingencies in them. There were there were certain things that were prophesied about what took place, showing God always knew what was going to go down. But understand that um, these Israel, for them to disobey God, which they did at his coming, when they rejected Jesus as Messiah, for them to disobey, it means there was something to obey. What was that? Well, all we have to do is read all the scriptures that are quoted in the story of the Olivet Discourse, and you'll find out exactly what they were supposed to do. And they did none of those things. And so it's okay. It's a great conversation to have. And I don't have all the answers where we can say, what would have happened had they obeyed? And I believe Jesus would have accepted that. He, I, I believe Jesus still would have went to the cross. I'm not going to theorize a whole lot on that. But basically, to sum it all up, Israel did not do anything they were supposed to do. They failed in their ministry. They shut people out of the kingdom. When the husband, the, when the heir showed up, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him and seize on his inheritance. They tried to steal, uh, you know, steal the things from the heir. And so uh, Jesus in all these parables is rebuking Israel for their failure in that, in that ministry. And so there for sure, because that ministry was taken from them and given to another nation, without a doubt, there are applications that we can make, but the primary interpretation, the interpretation, not the application of that passage, of these passages, are they are about Israel and a rebuke of their failure to be a light, to fulfill the ministry that was given to them, and therefore Jesus is showing why he's taking the kingdom from them and giving it to another nation. And so that's what's been going on now for the last 2000 years, the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual Israel, they have been the light to the world. They have been building the kingdom. And one of these days, that kingdom that was at hand, but was not ready for Christ, um, you know, you could say has been put on hold. And we've been as, the, as a, a New Testament church, we have been doing that work that Israel didn't get done for the last 2,000 years. And one of these days, another visit day of visitation is coming. A second coming is going to take place. And this time we'll be ready. But all glory goes to Jesus Christ because he's made us worthy. With, and, with, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. Israel's failure was because of their failure of, in the law. And we couldn't have done that either. Okay, I appreciate that response, uh, Tommy. Charles, let's throw it back to you. If there's anything there that you'd like to respond to, feel free to do so. And then you can follow it up with, with a specific question if you'd like. Yeah, um, I'm glad you explicitly brought up the issue about uh, prophecy being contingent. I agree that prophecy is contingent. The difference is 
is that I see the Abrahamic covenant of a different type of covenant than the Mosaic covenant. So what is contingent is whether that uh, any given generation, just as it's any given individual, whether I'm going to be faithful or not. But if God's promise promises that there's going to be a future generation that's going to be faithful. God's work is going to get done. And I agree that Israel uh, was temporarily set aside and now we're doing the work of the same ministry and all of that. But to be clear, this is my main question. You said that they were not eternally secure in the Old Testament, but do you believe that they were saved in the Old Testament? Oh, yes. And may, I want to make sure I'm very clear about this. People of faith were eternally secure in the Old Testament. However, a phys the physical nation of Israel, uh, they were not eternally secure. You know, proof of that is they were destroyed. And, right. and I don't believe that I don't believe they're going to come back. I don't believe they've been temporarily set aside. You know, Jesus said, let no fruit grow in the henceforward forever. When Jesus went into Jerusalem, he found no fruit there. And then he goes out to that fig tree and like Israel, it had no fruit and he cursed it. And he and then he goes back into Jerusalem. You know what he did? He did the exact same thing. He cursed it and they're done. And he, the work that he wanted to do, he has gotten done with an, an, uh, a spiritual nation, but he's also got it done too technically because God always keeps his word. Um, what you're looking for in a physical people, you need to understand it's not a matter of is God going to keep his promise? The question is how. Dispensationalists and replacement people believe God's going to keep all his promises. We disagree on how he's going to keep his promises. The promises that uh, were to be kept uh, or made to Israel will be fulfilled through one who descended from, from Israel, Jesus Christ. And all who are in Jesus Christ uh, will be recipients of those things. All those who are of faith in the Old Testament, all those of Israel who are of faith after. And it, it also includes, it all includes Gentiles. Okay, I, I guess the next, I don't know, uh, SMT, if we want to have another question or just go to the other parable. Because Why don't we do this, to be fair? Charles, you asked a few questions. I appreciate that. Pastor oh. Tommy, before we move to the next portion of this event, which will be the next parable, did you have a question or anything you'd like to pose to Charles based on anything he said? Right. Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, not to open up, other topics or anything, but, you know, um, I do think understanding the kingdom is important. And so, um, when the kingdom, I, I think it sounds like you agree that the kingdom was taken from Israel and given to the church, but it sounds like you think it's going to be given back. So when you say the kingdom was taken and given to another nation, what is that kingdom? What, what does that mean? Well, let me, let me clarify. Number one, uh, you have the theocracy of Israel, okay? And Christ never ruled over the theocracy. They rejected, so that kingdom was never set up. What was taken away was their ministry. The similarity between Israel and the church is both of them were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a witness to whoever it is you're ministering to. So that ministry continued, but I don't believe that the kingdom itself is a ministry. I think... Uh, the theocracy was the agent of ministry during that time, but the church 
is a distinct entity that's a uh, that's an agent of ministry as well. The one doing the ministry, different servants, if you will. Well, yeah, I, okay, I would agree with what you just said there. Um, that Israel was the agent. the The temple was the house of God. Um, they were supposed to be a light. And if you look at the Old Testament prophecies, the people from all over the world were supposed to be coming to Jerusalem, and there was supposed to be a place. Uh, for them and a way for them to become of Israel. But again, uh, it mentions in Isaiah 56, you know, to all those who keep my covenant and, and the Sabbaths and, uh, you know, the feasts and things. But again, all of that was, this is how it will be through the law. And that law, we understand it was revealed later by Paul that it was our schoolmaster to bring us to salvation. Israel was never going to get that job done. The job that they had, while it was reasonable, while it was, or while it was just, while it was a, a holy law, it was one that it was never going to happen. Uh, and so what they were supposed to do, what they should have done, and there's plenty of Old Testament prophecies we should we should go to, is they should have recognized if they would have acknowledged their failure, if they would have acknowledged acknowledged their sinfulness, and if they would have called on Christ, you know, he he could he would have got the job done. He said in Isaiah 56, he was going to gather the outcasts of Israel right after he says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you know what we see him do immediately after he quotes that verse, he starts healing the lame. He starts healing sick. He starts taking care of the outcasts, people that they wouldn't have let into the temple area because they'd be polluted and all that stuff. Jesus is literally showing up doing everything that he had promised that he was going to do. And he was very capable of, uh, you know, fulfilling all things. But at the same time, Israel didn't do their part. They were not ready. And, and so that, that, that kingdom, that ministry was taken from them, given another nation. And so it's been given, it's been given to the spiritual nation and thank God. And that's why it's the new and better covenant. Now, instead of people from the world, all coming to one place, we can take the kingdom to the whole world and, and thank God for that. And it's, it's, and we're all beneficiaries of that. I'm glad I don't have to go live in Israel. I, and so I think me and you would probably agree on a lot of that stuff, but the thing is, it doesn't make sense that that ministry is, would go back to Israel. I just, I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessary. Charles, feel free to have a, a final response, and then we're going to move into the next parable. So I appreciate the back well, and forth. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. So yeah. One, one argument why there has to be a necessitation of, you know, going back to Israel is because Jesus Christ has to be victorious in the realm in which he was defeated or where the first Adam was defeated. And so, you know, that's the Garden of Edom. He's got to be the kingdom of, uh, you know, that relates to him ruling over the whole earth. But then you see that the seed promise of Genesis 3.15 is narrowed down to Genesis 12, you know, with the promise of Abraham. And I understand that both of us believe in fulfillment. The issue is how that fulfillment occurs. Mm -hmm. Because I believe that, that the covenants are in the form of land grants and suzerain vassal treaties and stuff, the key to interpreting them is interpreting the way that Moses would have gave them to the audience. And you can't get more literal than a contractual statement. And, and so these promises that are unfolded in the relationship to them, uh, 
basically ensure that God's promises will be brought about in a particular way. And that and that's what we argued. The first time the word kingdom is used is in Exodus 19, wherever God told Israel, if you obey me, then you'll be a kingdom of priests. Yes, they failed and they were temporarily set aside. Their responsibility was to enthrone the right king. I think it's according to uh, a king of God's choosing, according to Deuteronomy 18. Now, the thing to understand about it is, though, Israel, uh, Israel did not get temporarily set aside because they rejected the Mosaic Covenant. The, the reason they got uh, temporarily set aside is because they rejected the kingdom offer because they had been failing and violating the covenant all that time. And God was gracious. And the reason that's so significant is because the promise of the Abrahamic covenant always guaranteed a particular generation or a particular individual that will continue on the responsibility of being the serpent crusher. Now, we know ultimately that's Jesus Christ that does that. So. That's important to understand because when we see a passage like when it's talking about the cursing of the fig tree, that's related to that particular uh, generation. And I would say that when it says the kingdom is taken to you and given to another one, that it's referring to the future future uh, Israel and they'll receive Christ in the tribulation. And then, you know, the millennial kingdom will start. Far as everything else, I think it harmonizes with my view. I think that uh, everything else you say, I, I think it works wonderfully with that. It's just the issue of the distinction of the kingdom and the church. Charles, thank you. To be fair, Charles, you did start this discussion by asking a couple questions. Yeah. Tommy, if you wanted a quick, let's say, 30-second to minute uh, final response, then we'll throw it back to Charles. And Charles, you can go into your next presentation. Yeah, I think it's just important to understand the... Um, you know, we, we keep talking about this distinction between the church and Israel. Um, you know, no, the the church, um, it's just Israel reformed. That's all it is. It's, a, it's the church expanded. It's a church that includes Gentiles. Uh, God made both one. He broke down the middle wall partition. The things of the law that kept us out, Jesus removed those things. And we are, in, we are included in that. When the apostle Paul got saved when the apostles got saved or disciples got saved and they followed Jesus. They did not cease being a part of Israel. The early church was meeting in the temple 20, 30 years. I think it was after the time of Christ. They didn't, they didn't think they quit being Jews. Um, they were, they were doing the work of the kingdom there. And so, um, but yeah, that's all I'll say on that for now. Okay, I appreciate that, Tommy and Charles. Great back and forth on the parable of the ten virgins. Okay, so now we're going to move into the next parable for tonight. I've got it up on screen, parable of the talents. And so, Charles, whenever you're ready, you have up to 10 minutes to expound. Can you hear me? On the text, yes. All right, can I, you see my I screen? I see your screen shared now, so you're good right. to go. Okay, so what's interesting is verse 14 starts with a four. So this gives me the indication that the previous parable is somehow explained by this statement or, or there's some kind of relationship there. And I notice, and I use the King James because I think Pastor Tommy Murchie is King James, uh, but I notice it's in italics here. And so this seems to be implied from the context for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants, all right? So basically, this is the imagery of a stewardship responsibility 
And this, uh, this seems to be an explanation as it relates to preparation. See, because the, the previous virgins, their stewardship was to fulfill their responsibility and duty. In that culture, what they were to be was to be the entertainment and the celebration and stuff. So they were, it was a dereliction of duty for them to not uh, be prepared in the way that they should have. So we keep going on into this. And basically what you see from this parable is that there's an unequal entrusting going on. And this entrusting that this master, which I would say is Jesus or God, uh, is based on differences in ability. So this is the principle is that he's talking about, I would say, spiritually investing while he is away. In other words, while the, uh, the groom is away. So, and this ties all the way back to the wedding and stuff, because the thing about it is that if we're using the imagery, and, and, and I know this is debated, but if we're using the imagery of the marriage, then what you have is you have the bride gets betrothed to the, the groom. Then he goes, prepares a place, which is John chapter 14. And then he comes back at a certain time. And so that would mean that the virgins are different from the bride that's coming back with the groom. And that fits with the pre-trib. And so I think it would kind of be a violation of, of uh, interpretation for the bride and the virgins to be the same thing. Also, the parable never explains what uh, who the bride is. And I'm tying this all together because it does relate. Because it's related to this idea of accountability. Accountability when? When Jesus Christ returns. Well, if you're pre-trib, then that's related to the judgment seat of Christ. Because we believe that the believer faces a different judgment than the great wine judgment of the a judgment of the unbeliever. And then later on, we'll also talk about a judgment of the goat and sheep. So right here, he's calling him to account in the in this parable. And what he does is he recognizes their faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant in this parable. And the thing is, is that the person either makes excuses or however you want to put it. He was afraid to invest as a steward. He failed at his responsibility. Like I said, this is a service context. I don't think this is salvation. Um, so you keep reading and he's called uh, a, a slothful servant. In other words, not being prepared, not stewarding over things, not being the light. The pastor Mamurchi has said, not being the witness, not being involved in ministry for application uh, is laziness. And, and, and I believe that we'll be held accountable to that. Now, that's a secondary application for the church. Keep in mind that Jesus is talking to the disciples in the Olivet Discourse. And I already said they represent Israel, but they also represent the future church. But the audience of the book of Matthew, and that's where the argument is mainly at, it are Christians. So I believe that Christians are reading this and they're, they need to learn from the example of that. I think sometimes we get focused on the characters and sayings within the book and miss the theological purpose of the book. I believe that Matthew was written to explain why the millennial kingdom was not established and possibly why the church was brought into play. Okay, so what happens here is in their accountability of it, that the talent is taken from him and they lose the opportunity to serve because it's given to someone else. All right. Then we have this statement here about outer darkness. Now, the outer darkness can refer to hell. I take it right now to refer to the darkness outside. Because if we have a marriage imagery in the previous where they're not let in when the door was shut, then we have this idea of a bright uh, cabin that's lit, that type of imagery, and these people are out in the cold. 
they're not able to go in and celebrate. Like I said, I don't think that's about salvation. And then weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is an idiom, a phrase that's used for deep regret. Now, sometimes this regret happens on earth and sometimes it happens in hell. And context is what's got to determine that. So uh, then, then the, the next parable is right here. So I guess what I need to do now is how much time do I have left, SFD? Uh, you just hit the five minute mark. So you got five more minutes. Okay. So, yeah, I, I want to talk about the contingency stuff as it relates overall to these parables and stuff while I have this time so that it gives Pastor Mamurchi more to work with and question me about. So Deuteronomy 30 is very key uh, with us. We believe it's an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant uh, called the land, the land covenant, or some people call it the Palestinian covenant. Other people don't like that term. But basically what it says is that God will always gather back when Israel was scattered. And there will be a future return of Israel. And it, and it uses the Hebrew shuv. And it basically said, when you return to me in repentance, I will return to you. So this eternal covenant is the basis for everything that, that happens. And so I would link that with, uh, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, that is a contingency, but it's a temporal contingency. The until is the qualification or the condition. And I think, Pastor Mamurchi even used that language. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. Unto or unless. Well, my argument is they will, based on Job chapter uh, Job 2.32. All Israel should be saved. Romans 11, uh, Romans 10.9. There's these passages like that. And I know that relates to bigger issues with the debate and everything. So I agree that there's a, a, a prophetic contingency. But the issue is, what is that contingency? Does that mean that that the because the covenant has been done with, the Mosaic covenant has been done away with, that the Abrahamic covenant has been done away with? Does that mean that just because Israel is still being saved in the church, but that the theocracy is not in operation? Uh, what's going on there? Because I agree that, that, the, that the church is similar to what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom where you have Gentile blessing again. But Gentiles have always been able to be saved and they've always been able to be blessed. Now, underneath the theocracy, they had to come to Israel. In the church age, they're equal footing as it relates to inheritance. Ephesians 2 can't be talking about salvation because, like I said, Gentiles and Jews have always been able to be saved. So we have this idea of this, this Gentile blessing. I think Zechariah 14 and other passages relate to this idea of the nations. You know, we got to deal with the ethnos and those distinctions like that. So I, I'm just saying that there, I agree with the pro prophetic contingency, but God has already made other statements in scripture that, that show you that the contingency is not on Israel's behavior in the sense of the keeping of the covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant in existence. It's dependent upon God because he walked among the sacrifices in Genesis 15. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, that's a Susan Vassal Treaty, and it's a Servants Treaty, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that, okay? So two different covenants in operation, one superimposed upon other because the Mosaic Covenant became the channel by which you received the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, I agree that not everyone in the theocracy was saved, uh, that per individuals had to believe uh, the gospel, whatever that was at that time. Of course, it was by faith through grace. Uh, in, in order to be saved. So that's something that's been true throughout. The issue is, is this issue of contingency. What are the qualifications for contingency? 
what breaks these covenants? Well, what fulfills these covenants might be the better language because as Pastor Mamurchi said, we both believe in fulfillment. The issue is who has the most literal fulfillment? Who uh, who goes into allegorical fulfillment, if you will? And I'm not denying the use of allegory as a genre and just like we're interpreting parables, but there's a difference between allegorical interpretation and interpreting allegorically. One of them is a faulty view of hermeneutic that's imposed upon the text. That's not Pastor Mamurchi's uh, intention, but it can happen to us all. And and so, you know, that that's always a danger. Even within my camp, there's some free grace uh, interpretations of this passage I have ruled out in my mind because of that issue. So again, my argument is, is that the kingdom is referring to the theocracy of Israel. Okay. And that will be during the millennial kingdom when Christ will reign in fulfillment of those promises. And, and the Israel, that Israel is not the metaphorical body of Christ. And I, I know those are other debates and maybe in the future we can do something like that. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that helps you understand my understanding of the second parable and how it relates to the first one and how it relates to the overall discussion. God bless. Okay, thank you very much, Charles, for that 10-minute uh, presentation on the parable of the talents. Okay, Pastor Tommy McMurtry, we're going to hand it over to you now. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours, and you've got 10 minutes. Yeah, so typically what ends up happening on these parables, they get over, we overcomplicate them way too much. We try focusing on every th little thing that's mentioned, and then we all tend to insert our theology into that parable. I think the, the way we should prove the interpretation of a parable should be on context, not on what our theology is. And I think that's what we're kind of getting away from here. We're getting away from uh, context and interpretation. So let me tell you uh, what this parable means, uh, the parable of the talents, and then we'll kind of go through this passage. And I think you're going to see this makes perfect sense. So first off, the man traveling in this parable uh, is Christ. The servants that he gave the talents to, uh, it's, we're not, when we see him given one five, another two and another one, uh, we don't need to figure out who those are. All that's doing is showing a steward, it's his job to use what has been given to them and to do something with it and to increase it. That's the job of a steward. Doesn't matter that he gave one five, another two, another one. All of them were expected to do something and to increase what was given to them because that's what a steward does. This is about Israel and their stewardship. They did not do what a steward was supposed to do. They did what the, stu the steward with one talent did. They went and hit it. And so what we're going so to see, the, the goods that this uh, man left, they were the things that were given to Israel when they came out of Egypt. In a Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was preaching, and he, goes, he quotes the famous very ignored verse, but one of the key verses in understanding uh, how to the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He says, this is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hear. Part of obeying the law was obeying that prophet and doing what he said to do. Jesus changed some things. He reformed some things that is coming. And it was actually obedience of the Jews. It was the Jews continuing to follow the law for them to follow Christ. 
And he says, um, this is that Moses, or I'm sorry, verse 38. And then he says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel, which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And you can go back in the Old Testament, see who those oracles were, but those were things of the temple. Those are the things they were supposed to use for the work of God, for the things of God. That's and But they did not use them properly. What did they do? They went and they made a golden calf. Uh, they, they turned their back on God. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They had every advantage. Paul said, what advantage did it have the Jew? What profit is there of the circumcision? Much every way chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had every advantage, but they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so... Uh, Zechariah 8.20 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass the ten men shall take hold uh, out of all languages of the nations even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That was them. They were supposed to be that way, that light. They were people from all over the world were supposed to want to go to them uh, so they could be led to Jerusalem, so they could be led to the things of God. They did not do those things. They didn't use what, what God had given to them. So he goes on in the parable and uh, about the talents. So what are those talents? This is a reference to the ministry. God wanted them to use those goods, the oracles of God for his purpose. He wanted them to follow his law. He wanted them to use the land for his glory. He wanted them to love him. He wanted that he wanted to dwell with them and for them to be his people. He also wanted them to be a light to the world. Those talents were everything they needed to live as a people physically, to operate spiritually, so they could have that relationship with God and not only have salvation, but so they could be a light to the world. Israel had no excuse for not serving God. He gave them everything they could possibly need. But what ended up what ended up happening, then he would had received the five talents, went and traded with the same and made the other five talents. That's what a steward is supposed to do. Likewise, he that received two, he gained the other two. We don't need to figure out who those guys are and who they represent. That's what a steward does. But he that received the one. Now we do know who that is. That was Israel. He went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh. That was in Matthew chapter 21 and reckoneth with them. This is the day of reckoning, the day of visitation. Look that word up. You'll see reckoning is one of the definitions. And so, again, the parable is specifically about the one who hid the talent. And what did he say to the one who did five? Well done, good and faithful servant. You did what you were supposed to do. Here's five more. But what did he say to the one who buried it? He said, he said, I knew thou art a hard man, reaping where thou it's not sown, gathering where thou it's not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there that thou hast is thine. And remember, the talents represent the things of God, the ministry, the word of God, the way of salvation. This steward went and buried the talent. When, the, when the, his Lord came, he didn't even have that to present to him. And let me tell you, Israel did not even have salvation. When Jesus Christ came, they weren't even saved. If they would have at least had that one talent, 
he would have at least maintained what he had been given. But since he hit it, it wasn't in possession, yet available. This is showing how Israel not only failed to produce fruit and to be a light, but they themselves had not been obedient. They weren't even saved. So what Jesus found at the temple earlier that week was not what he was looking for. And so just so nobody gets confused, we didn't receive this ministry by the law. We received this ministry when we were born again by faith. Not every Christian, if we want to make some New Testament application, will produce fruit. But you know what? They will at least stand before God with what they were originally given. Everyone who is a part of the kingdom now, and the kingdom is spiritual right now, but the work is real. The souls being saved are real. They will all be resurrected at the millennial kingdom, and we will serve in the millennial kingdom. We will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom, those descendants, those ones who weren't a faith like that centurion who Jesus said, I've not found a faith like this in Israel, they're going to be cast into outer darkness. They will be cast out. And so understand every saved person will at least have that what was what was given to them because we gained that by faith and it was eternally secure. What Israel had, they they had the things of the law. They had the miracles. They had, they, they had the land, they had the temple, they had all these physical things, yet what did they have to show for it at their coming? They didn't even have faith. The one thing you have to have to be eternally secure, even in the Old Testament dispensation, they, did, they didn't even have that. And so, you know what? They lost, they lost it all. And uh, that's what that is all about. Matthew 25 is another parable rebuking Israel for not doing what they were supposed to do. And so the virgins, okay, all that is, we can complicate that. Who are the five? Who are the, you know, who are the wise? Who are the foolish? All it's showing is a group that were not ready when the bridegroom came. They didn't have any oil in their lamp. That is a rebuke on Israel who was not ready at the coming of Christ. They didn't have oil in their lamp. We don't want to just make that a saved versus unsaved thing that's not what that's all about even though there are some applications that we can make tommy thank you very much for that 10 minute presentation gentlemen great job so far in the presentations <clears throat> i'm really enjoying these and learning a ton so this is great okay charles let's hand it to you and give you uh the opportunity since tommy just ended with his presentation to pick the first point or a first question to kind of kick us off in, in this discussion. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I know there's a lot of things you're saying for the benefit of the audience, because I, I really am agreeing with you on a lot of stuff. Uh, sadly, you know, we have to emphasize the things we disagree about. I agree that Jesus Christ was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. I agree that Israel was uh, supposed to be obedient. My question to you is this. You've already said that salvation never came through the law, which I agree with. What about sanctification? What is your view of sanctification through the Mosaic law during that time? Sanctification through the Mosaic law? Through through it, yeah. Well, again, I don't believe in salvation through the Mosaic law. Right. I do believe they had methods of sanctification to set themselves apart. For example, the priests were to sanctify themselves 
uh, the people and different feasts and things were to sanctify themselves and set apart. And uh, they were to do all these things in very reverent ways because they represented the holiness of God. Uh, they represented uh, they represented very holy things. And so they were always told to sanctify themselves. They were told how that was done. Those things did not give them eternal salvation, though. Uh, and so, uh, but those things were pointing to the holiness of God to help them recognize their need for a savior. And so we got all that sanctification. We got all those things through the Holy Spirit. So I didn't have to wash my hands before I come to church my feet. Uh, I probably should to be polite, but you know, I don't have to do any of that. But just so you know, for future reference, I don't believe any covenants have to do with salvation. I believe mm -hmm. they're all about sanctification. So that's why I put them in the service category. Um, but we could come back to that. I wanted to ask you, you brought up some passages about where they're saying, let us go, you know, and worship and grabbing the hand of the Jew. And, and then it used the term nation there. Do you believe that these are act going to be actual nations in the millennial kingdom or is these just individual Gentiles? How, how do you view that? Yeah, uh, man, you know, I had that in my notes so I could say it right, but I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to go off memory. Um, I believe uh, when the new covenant came, we see in the book of Acts where it mentions how he hath made us all of one blood. And so I believe all of the prophecies about the nations there's many that still need to be fulfilled. However, a lot of those nations are gone. You know, we don't really have Edomites and Ishmaelites anymore. Gog and Magog, you know, everybody's like, that's Russia. N no, actually it isn't. And if you, uh, a little bit of study, it, I think it's pretty easy to prove. And we see examples of this in the New Testament. These nations, um, I believe uh, they're spirit. I believe they're spiritual and they will be fulfilled. Um, for So for example, you know, who are Edomites? or not Edomites, uh, Gog and Magog, it's Gentiles. It's just heathen. That's what Gog and Magog is. It's just, it's just heathen people. Uh, you know, who's the Edomites and the Ishmaelites? Uh, that's Jews, physical descendants of Abraham. Um, you know, that, that's who it is. It's not even, it's not even the Muslims. It's ones, you know, what, you know, claiming, um, you know, ones who are making claim to the promises of God while, and believing in another Messiah. Um, I, I don't have all of the different examples in front of me, but um, understand those nations, many of those Old Testament prophecies, they had a fulfillment, you know, even before the time of Christ, you know, a lot of nations got their come up, as you could say, um, you know, when the Babylonians came through, did a lot of their thing. But I do believe there's still uh, spirit, you know, there's still more fulfillment to come for those things, but it's going to come through a you know, more of a spiritual people, not a genetic people, not even a geographic people so much because they're just frankly, they, they don't exist, you know, and, and frankly, too, I don't want to, you know, open up another subject. Israel, it, the, the physical nation of Israel, it doesn't exist yet. It meets none of the parameters that it must meet in order to claim any existence. And I asked Pastor Tab this. I'm going to keep asking Dispensationalist says, what are Israel's credentials today to prove they're that nation? What what gave the UN the authority to reestablish a nation that, that God originally instituted and that God originally destroyed? What makes them Israel? Because they're calling themselves Israel? 
be believing that you know you in creation over there is is the nation of Israel that we that that's connected to the one in the Old Testament. That's no different than saying Bruce Jenner's a woman. It really isn't. There and nobody can tell me what their credentials are. Well, I, just to answer your question briefly, I've never claimed that they have credentials. I don't believe that 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 1948 is prophetic fulfillment. Okay. It might be stage setting because the Antichrist is going to deceive somebody, you know, but I don't believe that that's the prophetic fulfillment. Well, understand they are going to come back, but they haven't yet. And, uh, but, um, I'm, I, I guess, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to get into that subject. They are going to come back, but it's not a good thing and it hasn't happened yet. And so right. when we talk about Israel, you know, I guess I'm, I think it's important that we know who you're talking about because if you're referring to people over in the Middle East, a people who wear yarmulkes, a people who are claiming a, a, a genetic, you know, thing or whatever, um, there is absolutely nothing at all uh, to give any credibility to that. And I know that's a very offensive thing to say, but it's just it's just reality. It, it really is. Well, I give them the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, I guess, you know, the only way we'll know who is actually Israel is whoever signs the covenant with the Antichrist. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, do you agree that the word church, like when it's used in church in the wilderness, that that's a non-technical term, that context determines how it's being used? Do you agree with that? Well, I believe, I think church has a lot of different words. I think it's referring to, uh, you know, I, I think congregation is another word. Uh, we see those used interchangeably when the New Testament's quoting the Old Testament. When the Old Testament said congregation, the New Testament says church. But the church is always uh, a physical place. It, it's a place. It's a it's a it's a building. It's a place where uh, people congregate, save people congregate. It's a place where the word of God is, and um, you know, and they did they did have a church. They had the house of God that was in Jerusalem. That and um, interestingly enough, in Matthew twenty-three, after Christ's triumphal entry, he said, uh, "My my uh, talk about his father's house would be a house of prayer for all nations." He called it his father's house there. But interesting when he got to Matthew twenty-three, when he's rebuking Israel because again, they were not acceptable. They didn't pass. I think it's interesting what he says to them. He says, "Behold, your house is left unto you desolate." That's because that no longer was the house of God. And the house of God now it was something that was given to the believers. And um, so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can use it. But without a doubt, we are connected. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians, when talking about the children of Israel, he said to the Corinthians, the Gentiles, the Gentile church, he talked about Israel and he said, our fathers. How are they their fathers? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because they were connected to that same olive tree that that generation of unbelieving Jews was broken off of. Okay. Um, you mentioned the term spiritual kingdom, that we're in the spiritual kingdom now. What is your primary passage uh, 
that leads you to believe that we're in a spiritual kingdom right now? Well, I mean, the Bible talks about how the kingdom of God is within you. And I don't know if I hope you're not one of those distinguish the kingdom of God between the kingdom of heaven. But no, I, okay, they're good. synonymous. Yeah. The, so issue, no, it, the issue with there is within he's talking to the Pharisees. So I would say that Antas would be translated as with, within your midst. He was offering the kingdom to them. Right. No. So because again, the physical kingdom, it it didn't work. You know, you mentioned the uh, passage in Deuteronomy where it talked about, um, you know, if you do all these things, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. Well, what did Peter say? You know, ye are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You know, we are, we are the priest. Why? We have a sanctification. Well, we didn't get it from from washing in a mikvah. We didn't get it from, you know, our garments and things that we wear and any, you know, having uh, anointing oil put on us. We got it through the Holy Spirit. Those things are given to us. These and these things aren't physical. These things I, are spiritual. I agree that the church uh, is a priesthood. I, I don't mm -hmm. deny that. That goes back to them sharing the same ministry. Right. But you understand also that spiritual, you know, the, the, the spiritual things we do while we are, while the church is a, is a physical entity, you know, you can see it, you can touch it, you can be a part of it. Uh, you can be baptized into it and all that kind of stuff. But our ministry, you know, the work we do, it is, it's building a, it's building a spiritual kingdom. And, uh, and one of these days it will be a physical kingdom, but not until we're glorified because again, where the, the Jews failed in cleansing themselves through the law, we will succeed through Jesus Christ. But we only have our only our spirit is saved right now. We're waiting for the changing of the body to take place. We're waiting for the salvation of the of the body and the soul. And that will happen immediately at the return of Christ. And when that takes place, um, you know, we will be acceptable. And we will be ready to be used in the kingdom. And that kingdom, it's going to be made up of Jews and Gentiles. We're going to be a part of the same kingdom that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. We're going to sit down with them. Same part of the kingdom that David was in. All those promises Jesus made to Israel, they will be fulfilled to the very people he promised them to. To the saints of old and to the Jews who believed and the Jews today who believe they will be a part of that. Uh, but it, but there's not there's not some second wave of a physical people that we can expect some you know supernatural thing to happen to in the future. No, in an acceptable time I have heard thee. I forgot where that is. It's in the old testament. But Paul quoted that to a Gentile church. That was a prophecy to Israel. And what did he tell them? Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That salvation that was promised to the Jews, it already came. Jesus turned them, everyone from iniquities, at the cross. What they have to do now is acknowledge that. They need to look and live. And if they will do that, all Israel will be saved. But if they abide not still in unbelief. Okay. Um... SOT, how much time we got left in this? Well, Charles, why don't you either uh, make one one more point, ask one final question, 
to engage and then we'll move into the third parable and therefore the third set of well, presentations. Well, can I just make a brief statement for clarification purposes? I really sure. don't have a question. Yeah. So until recently, and I mean recently, because I recently took Andy Wood's uh, class on the kingdom, I believed like Rari, Pentecost, and others that there was a kingdom was a church. There was different forms of the kingdom and stuff. My current position is that I believe that when kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is being used in the gospels, that that's referring to the future kingdom. So I currently don't hold the view that, that the body of Christ, the metaphorical body of Christ is the kingdom. And so anytime in this discussion, if you can bring up additional passages besides the one you brought up about the kingdom is within you, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Okay, gentlemen, very good uh, back and forth discussion so far. And now we're going to move into our third and final parable for tonight, parable of the sheep and goats. And so, Charles, whenever you're ready, just let me know. I do see your slides at the bottom here, and therefore let me get them up for you. Whenever you're ready, Charles, the floor is yours. You got up Can to you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? All yep. right, I'm ready. So when the, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. I take this to refer to the Messianic Millennial, uh, well, his return and the, his setting up of the Messianic Millennial Kingdom. Okay? And so we have a statement here, before shall be gathered all nations. Now, uh, is, this, is this individuals from all the nations? In other words, is this a reference to people from the Gentiles? I'm kind of leaning that way. I do believe that there is a national judgments within the millennial kingdom, but I'm kind of thinking these are individuals from the nations because in my view, Jesus Christ wipes out all unbelievers or at least those that uh, are and have the ability to believe and have rejected at that point. And so he talks about judging between the sheep and the goats. Now there's a cool passage in Ezekiel 34 that I've always been interested in because it talks about the irresponsible shepherds, it's covenant language kind of related to the theocracy then and maybe even to the future. It talks about judgment of sheep and goats and things like that. So because of that, I tend to lean to the idea that this passage was not about salvation. However, I've been challenged in my preparation for this debate because I started noticing some things. Well, right here, uh, the, the, the sheep are told, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. My current view are there's, there's two types of inheritance mentioned in scripture. All believers inherit God in salvation positionally, but not all believers will inherit in the sense of ruling and reigning that relates to rewards and rank in the millennial kingdom. Uh, then we keep reading and we see that the basis for this is he said, I, I, I was hungry, you gave me meat. So basically food, clothing and shelter and visiting in prison. And, and they said, Lord, when did we do this? And then he tells them, when you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. But in 37, he says, then shall the righteous answer him. So when I saw the word righteous, I'm like, is this positional imputed righteousness? Or are we talking about ethical righteousness? You know, because my view of the Sermon on the Mount is that that's not talking about positional righteousness. That's talking about the righteous acts that one does, not for salvation, but sanctification It's for discipleship. Sort of similar to these parables where you're waiting for the kingdom. And in the meantime, how do you conduct yourself? But there's some other things that I was looking at that made me wonder if it is positional righteousness as I was going. So then we see right here and he says uh, in 39, 
Uh, so remember, one of them visited, the other one didn't. And he said, uh, because they failed to do this, I say to you, and so much as you had done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Okay, these are the ones that are being rewarded. Now, when he says brethren, my view of the brethren right here is that this is referring to Israelite believers during the tribulation. During that time of anti-Semitism that I would say would probably be worse than, than Hitler's time because there's passages in the book of Revelation that seem to indicate that the Antichrist goes after Israel and they're protected in the wilderness and there's other passages related to that. Uh, I take the brethren to refer to Israelite believers during the tribulation. And the ye, uh, if, uh, and I say to you, in so much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren. So I would put this as Gentile believers during the tribulation. Okay. So as I keep going, and uh, uh, so this is where he's telling them, because you didn't minister to the Israelite believers during the tribulation. I'm not talking about Israel now. I'm talking about Israel during the tribulation. Uh, because of this, they'll go away into everlasting punishment. Now, at this point, and in, in this level of preparation, I can't get around the idea that everlasting punishment probably refers to hell. It's still true that the righteous into life eternal could both be positional and experiential. But this leads me to believe that the distinction between the sheep and the goats is is between believers and unbelievers. Now, I didn't want this to be so because it, it challenges how I interpreted the previous uh, parables. And also, if I could argue that this is all experiential, then I would undermine some of the lordship arguments and stuff. But there is a correlation between one's behavior and one's belief. I've been saying that from the beginning. However, during the tribulation, that will become more evident than anything else because it's going to be so polarized, you know, with the mark of the beast and, and all that type of stuff and everything. So I'm glad that you believe in the, in, in the tribulation because you won't fall into the arguments that these other people make uh, that try to say, look, Lordship salvation is true because this is proof that if you don't do these things, then you're not saved. Like, no, this is talking about during the time. And then when people try to say, look, that shows you don't believe it in salvation is the same in every dispensation. That's not true. I don't believe that people are saved by taking the mark in the in, in the in the tribulation. I believe that salvation is the same in every dispensation or throughout history, however you want to put it. So I think there's some issues that sometimes we lean and interpret a past a certain way to avoid the people, uh, the arguments, the counter arguments of the people we debate and discuss with. And, you know, this was a challenge to me because a person I highly respect, you know, I started realizing, okay, there's not all the things that he's saying necessarily fly. And so I appreciate this opportunity for that. I don't know what else to add. How much time do I got left, SFT? You just hit the six minute marks. So you got about four minutes. Okay. So, yeah, going back to the whole uh, Exodus, well, you know what? I'll do this. I made this chart. And so you have the 10 virgins, the talents, and the goats, and the sheep. So when did it occur? I viewed they all occurred in the tribulation. What group is mentioned right now? This is just tentative and preliminary. I have the Israelite saints, or the talents, the tribulation saints, and the goat and the sheep, the saints and the ain'ts. Uh, the preparation. I believe that virgins relate to sanctification, being prepared, being a witness, testimony. The talents, sanctification, uh, related to being faithful. The goat and sheep distinction is primarily positional 
but it still involves serving the Lord and ministering and all of that. So it even relates to sanctification. The missed opportunity, the 10 virgins, the foolish virgins miss out on the messianic banquet. I think they miss out on that blessing. I don't think that blessing is salvation. Uh, the talents miss out. The one that's unfaithful, he uh, misses out on future opportunity because what he had was taken to give someone else. In other words, the idea is, is that if you serve God now, you'll have greater opportunity to serve God in the millennial kingdom. And maybe that final state of service is determined by how we serve here, like your rank or something. I don't know about that. but. And then the goat and sheep, the missed opportunity was a minister to the Israelite believers during the tribulation. The issue of recognition, the knowing idea, they were denied to go into the uh, the banquet uh, with the 10 versions. The, the faithful uh, stewards were recognized for their faithfulness. And the goat and the sheep are recognized for their saved status, but also for their ministry during that time. So the audience for the, the Olivet Discourse are the disciples, who I believe are all believers. Uh, not Judas is in view here. Uh, then we have the book audience being the church. I take that as referring to their believers. And the implications for this or the applications from these parables is that even though we don't live in the uh, tribulation, we still need to be prepared to give an account. We still need to be faithful to give an account. And we still need to be thankful or graceful. And that's coming from the idea that ministering to the uh, during the tribulation, they're going to minister out of grace. And if we're not gracious with others, it could be an indication that we don't understand grace fully. And so uh, I thank you for your time. God bless. Charles, thank you very much for that 10-minute presentation on the parable of the sheep and goats. And so now we're going to hand it over to Pastor Tommy. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours and you've got 10 minutes. Yeah, so this passage will really mess with people's salvation teaching if you're making application without proper interpretation. You'll be all over the place. And I do want to share this chart that I drew up. I made this especially for my best friend, SoCal Preston, who loves me so much. He always <laughs> wants me to have charts. And so I made this chart, too, because I just want to be very clear. I do believe in the age of grace. And here's a chart showing my age of grace. This is trademarked. Nobody can steal this. Uh, they owe me money. I believe the age of grace has been from Eden all the way to New Jerusalem. And so I took a lot of work. Uh, I hope everybody appreciates that chart there. And I'm really disappointed I don't see SoCal Preston heckling me in the live chat. But anyway, sorry about that. I had to share that. But uh, this particular parable, this one is, and again, I'm going to make, I, I, I don't have time to back up everything I'm going to say, but if there's something that you want me to clarify more, I'd be glad to do that. I believe the first two parables, the primary interpretation is first century to the Jews, calling them out for their failure. This next parable, I believe it, the primary interpretation is exclusively future. And in verse 31 of Matthew 25, it says, when the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Without a doubt, that is referring to what we see in Matthew 24, 29, where it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Don't even try to tell me that's not the same thing in Matthew 25, 31. And he shall send his angels, that's those holy angels with him, 
So without a doubt, this, this is what he's talking about. Something that we are still waiting for, looking to come. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And so just as God brought judgment on Jerusalem for what they had done with what God had given them, one day God is going to judge the entire world in the same way. Just like there was a, uh, you know, there was a time of wrath that came on Jerusalem. There was the 70th week of Jerusalem that I believe already took place where God dealt with them and they were destroyed and they were not saved. I believe there is going to be a time of tribulation that's going to come on all the world. And I believe that God is going to save his people out of that. And I believe there will be faith when he returns. And then I believe he's going to pour his wrath out on all the world, just like he did on Jerusalem back in 70 AD. And so um, um, while I'm all for speculating on how future things are going to play out, it's okay if we disagree on some of these things, but we need to understand that the Bible clearly teaches when Christ returns, it will be a deliverance for his people and judgment on the world. Now, it does not go into the details that we see in Revelation, things that were not revealed until John revealed them. But something that they understood back then was a coming of Christ one of these days and a coming judgment. And so some passages speak of these things in a very unspecific and general way, while Revelation goes into great detail. Revelation 14, for example, is something that is very general. You could say it's figurative or a summary of what Christ will do in the end. In Revelation 14, 14, I look and behold a white cloud, one sat upon it like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and his hand a sharp sickle. And I'm not going to read it all. He reaps. And what does he do? He gathers up a harvest of earth. That's a picture of the gathering of the elect. And then in chapter 17, we got another angel with another sickle. He gathers them up, cast them in the winepress of the wrath of God. That is a reaping for judgment. The vision here isn't about a single event in a 24-hour period in a specific geographical location. It's an overall summary of what God will do in the end. He will gather one group to himself. He will gather the rest for judgment. And so when you go to Revelation 15, it goes into greater detail on what happens to those thrown in the winepress of the wrath of God. And it tells us about the seven vials. And so this separating of the sheep from the goats is something people are taking overly literal and then trying to figure out how they can force it into their Larkinish timeline or even the post-trib uh, rearranging of the Larkin timeline. And that's not what we need to do. Just keep in mind, when Jesus said all these things, the book of Revelation had not been written. Jesus isn't worried about confusing them with a list of events we see in Revelation. You know, because they didn't have these things yet. They didn't understand. He's given a figurative statement about what he will do at his return in the end. The book of Revelation just gives us another dispensation so we know more details about this dividing of the sheep from the goats. We know what it's going to look like more, but it's spoken of very general. So you shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. And I don't believe there's going to be an event in the future where Jesus is going to come sit down in Jerusalem, like a lot of people say, and then gather all the nations physically together. And then, all right, you know, sheep over here, goats over here. No, I believe this takes place at the rapture. That's when the sheep and the goats are separated. 
some people, um, you know, so verse 32 does show this as a dividing of nations. That's what it says. And let me know when I'm getting close to my time. But if there is a judging of the nation, then what is the criteria for being allowed in? You know, if not the treatment of Israel, which it sounds like what uh, Charles believes. And many people believe that there has to be a criteria somewhere. You know, if this is nations like the USA or China, then it really can't be about salvation because what nations are saved? You know, so what do we have to do? What does the United States have to do to get in? Okay. Well, verse 34 says, then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's a kingdom prepared for the foundation of the world for a physical nation like the United States because we're so good to Israel. That doesn't sound right. For I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. And we all know what he goes on to say. The righteous, like, when did we do this? And you know, when you did the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. So there's a criteria we see. The treatment of Christ's brethren. Now, would we say this is talking about the Christians? Or are we going to do like Zionists and say, well, no, it's talking about how we treat the Jews? Well, this also makes it appear that for a nation to go into the kingdom that was prepared from the foundation of the world. And, you know, could we, would I be mistaken to connect that to the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Sounds like this is related to salvation. You know, what does that mean? Well, I'll try to explain. You know, it sounds like we're getting in by works. The work salvation people love this and they love the fact dispensationalists have no idea what to do with this passage. Verse 41, then he shall say to them in the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. That's hell. That, that's hell. And then same thing. I was hungered. You didn't give me meat. And they're like, when did we not do that? That's what the unrighteous are going to say. And but and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Don't tell me that's not eternal life uh, that we're trying to get people saved by. So what exactly is this judging of the nations? Jesus is speaking in a figurative and not literal way, same as he was in the other two parables. We understand the other two parables were figurative. Why are we so literal on this one all of a sudden? A literal, a literal explanation would not have been understood by the disciples then because certain things had not been revealed yet and wouldn't be until after the resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The judging of the nations, it was a very important subject to the Jews during that time because the Old Testament prophets had pronounced many things on them that still need to be fulfilled. And these things do still need to be fulfilled in a way, but in a way they didn't understand yet. Because if those prophecies were fulfilled in the way they were stated in the Old Testament on physical people, Israel's toast too. But what does it say in Acts 3.18? But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive unto the time of the restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Here's what we've got to understand about the nations that was not understood before the cross. Acts 17, 26. And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. They did not understand that yet. That 
no longer are nations spiritually accountable for what that nation is doing. The gospel has gone to the whole world and every individual has an opportunity to be saved and to separate themselves from that and to become a part of the people of God. Many of the nations that we see prophecies about don't exist anymore. But at the same time, you can see that they do spiritually like Gog and Magog. 30 seconds. Okay. I do believe they represent the Gentiles. So, um, you know, so who are Christ's brethren? Well, I mean, Jesus is very clear. He that doeth the will of my father. They're my father, mother, and, and brethren. And so uh, are the sheep saved? Absolutely. So is this teaching work salvation? Absolutely not. I don't have time to get in that, but I would I would love to clarify that at some point. Pastor Tommy, thank you very much for that roughly 10-minute uh, presentation on the sheep and the goats. Uh, three presentations from the both of you and all excellent. I'm really enjoying this. This is great stuff. So, okay, we're going to kind of move into now back and forth uh, discussion on our third and final uh, parable here, which means to the audience, these are your final minutes to uh, send in your questions. And I've already got tons of fantastic questions. Anyways, good mix as well for Tommy and Charles. Okay, Charles, anything uh, stand out uh, to you that you'd like to focus on first? Yeah, um, like I said earlier, you know, I think some of the things that you're saying, uh, Pastor, are for the audience sake, because I made, I think I made the distinction that I don't believe that we're talking about nations. We're talking about individuals. So in my view, Jesus Christ comes back and he kills all unbelievers. Now, in your view, that's post-trib. Uh, my question would be about, you know, how would you repopulate the millennium? But there, that's a different issue or whatever. But uh, I just want that to be clear that I do not hold to this idea that if America bees good to the nation of Israel now, that this is going, that's going to be a fulfillment of that or something. Now, there is. Some people go back to, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all of that. But I'm very skeptic of the whole political uh, interpretation of all that. I just want to say that. Um, my question to you is in uh, Acts 17, when it says one blood, are you understanding that to be the atonement of Jesus or the blood of Adam? The blood of Adam. Okay. All right. Because I wasn't sure. Uh, if you were going back to Adam or you're going back to Jesus, because I've always understood it like that. Um, you said the 70 weeks has been fulfilled. Is that your understanding? Yes. Okay. Um, the 70 weeks of the desolations of Jerusalem. The, okay. the, the, seven, the 70 weeks have nothing to do with global events. They have everything to do with Jerusalem, and they happened. So... You don't believe that the time of Jacob's trouble is included within that 70 weeks? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it happened. Okay. Um, I, think, time I think, I think the time shadows. you can make an application about things that are to come, but that's not the interpretation. The yeah, application is yeah. there because obviously we do have global events that Revelation prophesies that are similar in pattern to what we see that came upon Israel in the first century. Okay. But the, the interpretation of Daniel's 70 weeks is 70 weeks of desolations on Jerusalem. And that happened. But if you want to make an application of something 
in a coming tribulation. I'm, I'm not mad at you if you do that, but we got to be careful because, you know, are so are you basing your position, your timelines off interpretation or application? If you make if you use Daniel's 70th week as proof, you're making application and that's not proof. It's just, it's just a for it's a foreshadow. It's similar. Uh, it's not it's not the same. It's not exactly the same. And so I think you got to watch out for that. Okay, so in your view, when was that final seven years of the 70 weeks fulfilled? I, I, you know, um, I'm open to different ideas on that. I think it probably happened in the Jewish-Roman War, um, you know, okay. it, around 70 AD. But And uh, it was an actual seven-year period? You agree with that? Yeah. So how long is the tribulation in your view? Well, for sure... Uh, you know, and, and understand the tribulation, not trying to be overly technical, but I am trying to be very biblical uh, in my use of the word. Um, if if you're referring to the tribulation of Matthew 24, uh, you know, that that already happened. If you're referring to uh, the events of Revelation, we do see several references to a three and a half year uh, period. I think it's all the same three and a half year period, but understand... Revelation doesn't give us a timeline for the seals. I don't know how long that's going to take. Um, I think it might be seven years. I, I I think it's very, I think it's a very good theory based off a principle or based off a principle and an application that we get from Daniel's 70th week that it will be uh, seven years um, that God will, you know, let the world get run through the ringer, kind of like he did. Uh, with Israel, you know, after the first coming of Christ. But, you know, I don't I don't get too divisive over that. I have only two more questions. One of them I just want you to be aware of. Um, I'm interested in how your view differs from uh, Alan Kushner's view because he's leans closer to you, but yet he claims to be a dispensationalist. But m the more important question is this. Do you believe that my interpretation of the parables that I gave today violates free grace in any type of way. And it's no, so but way. I, don't, I don't think you said anything that violated free grace, but I do think that um, things you were saying about Matthew 25 didn't make any sense. You know, if you're right. saying that everlasting punishment isn't hell, that I didn't make say sense. that. I said it is hell. Oh, you did say it was hell? I thought yeah, you said it I, wasn't. Well, I'm glad that you saw this. I questioned that, um, but I'm glad that you see a distinction between the first two parables and the third one. Because yeah. that, that means that we both came to, to, to a distinction between those categories, even though we differ on some of the interpretations. So that makes me feel a little bit better, you know, uh, mm. about my conclusion that I came to so far. Right. But here, here's where people are getting confused on the salvation end. When it comes to that parable, it's because um, it, it's always important when you're looking at anything in the Bible to keep in mind what not what dispensation they're in, but what had been dispensed to them at that time. And so when there were certain things that weren't revealed uh, during that time, you know, you 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 always <laughs> want to think what would the mind of that person in that time? How would they have thought of what was said there? And so when Jesus is saying, you know, I love how he said, 
the righteous are going to answer and say, when saw we the hungered? The righteous don't know what they did. You know why? Because righteous people aren't trusting in their works to get them to heaven. Okay? Lost people, you know, they don't see where they're going wrong. You know, like, you know, when did we not do these things? And you say, we did it not to least these, my, my brethren. And so understand, you say, well, there's still an element of a work there. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's pretty much impossible for a saved person to never do any kind of work. You know, all saved people are going to, and, and the bad works. Yeah, we do a lot of bad works, but those things are under the blood. Those things are not seen. God will only see the good, uh, you know, when we stand before him on judgment day. And so, but the thing is, what's interesting about the lost, and especially to the fact he's saying this to Israel, who is the biggest persecutor of the church. He referenced how they treated his people. And understand the Christians were his people. The believers were his people. And interesting enough, and I, I am not one for like using people's works to prove they're saved or not saved. I like to use what they profess. But interestingly enough, in Philippians 127, Paul said, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. And so when he's talking about those who are persecuting them and going after him, he said, these people that are going after you, that's an evident token of perdition. So, um, you know, people, you know, mistreating God's people that, you know, that's a really bad sign, but again, unrighteous, they don't see themselves as doing those things. Righteous people trusting in Jesus. They don't see themselves as doing anything good, but what does God see? Only the good. So he will see you. You know, well, I'm, some good I'm, works. I'm glad you're free grace all the way throughout the Bible. You know, uh, yeah, hundred percent. Just like my fancy chart that'll make Nick Sayer be ashamed of his, uh, <laughs> or not Nick Sayers. I'm looking at Nick Sayers in the thing. Oh, so yeah. Preston, I'm looking <laughs> at my other buddy yeah, Nick yeah. Sayers. Yeah. Who? Uh, well, either way, Tommy, both of your biggest fans. Yeah, so. Nick Sayers. Yeah. Man, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I saw you've done about. 13,000 hours trying to debunk my revelation series. And I, I didn't even make it through one hour. Wow. So yeah, he's, he's got some long videos on it, but uh, yeah, Nick Sayers, but he believes you can lose your salvation though. Right. I don't know. He's Nick, Nick Sayers. He's got his own set of beliefs that I don't think anybody else has. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, this is not my forte. I mean, I, I've been studying this stuff for years and everything, but I focus on defending free grace. Uh, yep. And so, you know, I, this was a window into the subject. And if you want to do something future on a particular area, you know, I'm open to that. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, I don't I don't think I've unlocked everything when it comes to these parables. I just I, I believe that the key to making sense out of them and them not butchering, you know, what well, you know, what people teach on salvation is just understanding the, um, you know, the context of the people at that time. These were rebukes on Israel who were just told the kingdom was going to be taken from them. The parables are explaining why and prophesying judgment that was going to come on them. And, and so, 
that uh, and that's and those are the things the disciples asked about you know what should be the sign of thy coming and at the end of the world and all and all these things and then this last one it is it's exclusively about his coming and he clarifies that when he specifically refers to him coming in his glory and one area where the preterists where they say one thing right but then they say something dead wrong is when they talk about Christ's coming in 70 AD well Understand the coming of Christ um, ended up for Israel being a coming in judgment. And you can say it started with his pronouncement of judgment that he gave him um, at the triumphal entry at his coming at the day of visitation. Uh, but it wasn't fully consummated until 40 years later. He gave them space to repent. He gave them time and, and they didn't. And so I, I don't get mad at the preterist when they say, that uh you know Christ's coming in 70 AD was a coming in judgment. Well, for sure it was a coming in judgment on Israel. His his coming at the triumphal entry was the coming of Christ, his coming for Israel, but it didn't work out too good because again, these people were under the law. So now understand Jesus, he's lent out his vineyard to other husbandmen, and this is goes from a parable. Uh, that's after the Olivet Discourse, but before, uh, or it was uh, before the Olivet Discourse, but after the triumphal entry, he lent out his vineyard to other husbandmen and he went on a long journey. He's on that long journey right now, and we're waiting for him to come back again, like he did in the first century. When he comes back, he will find faith. He will find, he will find virgins. He'll find people who are ready because we've been made ready because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and because of our sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and um, all those things are going to be fulfilled. So at his second coming, it will be glorious. It wasn't for Israel in 70 AD, but it will be for us. And it will be horrible, not just on Jerusalem, but on the entire world who will have rejected Messiah. And I believe what we're seeing today, if I may just insert an extra layer to this, um, this obsession with Israel is all leading up to, uh, you know, a again, I, I believe a rebuilding of the temple that the world will get behind and understand that will be the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. But this time it won't be just Israel, you know, rebelling against Christ and rejecting him. It will be the world uniting in that rebellion and the entire world will be punished when that takes place. And so we ought to look back at 70 AD. We ought to look back at Daniel's 70th week and look at what God did to Jerusalem and be like, man, think about him doing that to the whole world because that's that's what's going to come. But here's why people have had to make Daniel's 70th week in the future. First off, because Larkin did it and he brainwashed an entire generation and we still haven't got it out of everybody. But because that gives people a reason to think God's going to go back to working with Israel again. Because the, the pre, most pre-tribbles will tell you, 70 weeks, they are all about Jerusalem. They're right when they say that. They're absolutely right when they say that. It, go read all of Daniel 9. It's all about, not Jews, but Jerusalem. It, it's all about that. And so if they can make it like that last week didn't happen, then it gives reason to believe there's still something coming for 
uh, for Israel. But no, they already got theirs. All we're going to see, if, if if Israel has anything left to do, I I, be, I I don't I believe the credentials. Well, I won't, I won't go into that. But let me just say, um, when it comes to uh, all these things, um, you know, I, I I believe they are just a part of the beast system, and uh, that's why no Christian should be supportive of any of those things. Okay, gentlemen, excellent uh, back and forth discussion. Charles, unless there's something else you wanted to add there in terms of final words, what I like is we've now just hit the two-hour mark and uh, we've gone through all of the parables. Again, great presentations, lots of great feedback from the live, very lively live chat tonight. They're keeping me entertained, that's for sure, as usual with these discussions. Again, uh, Tommy, that chart of yours, very sophisticated. Uh, you could probably toss that up on eBay. And uh, I meant to put a trademark uh, logo on it, you know, to make sure people don't steal it and use it. But right. <laughs> as, it's very, I'll, I'll say this too. It's very biblically accurate. Yeah. It's almost impossible to replicate. It's just far too detailed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, gentlemen, seriously though, gr great show, great event. Essentially the goal that I had in mind for what this show would be is what it turned out to be a two views event in-house discussion between brothers <laughs> and the unveiling of pastor Tommy McMurtry's brand new uh, it, it's mirrored on my end, but I think I can so age of grace. <laughs> Eat your heart out Larkin. <laughs> so gentlemen, you guys both did a great job and we now have time for questions. So, uh, you know, we, we, we want to avoid the, uh, what has been the usual lately, the three, three and a half hour debates. So we'll do about 20 minutes of audience questions. And from what I'm seeing, all very much on topic, all very interesting. And so I'd be interested to see how you both uh, engage these questions. So, okay, let's start right at the, uh, right at the beginning. Um, you know, I'm going to ask my own question first, as I usually like to do in these eschatology uh, events. So I'm curious, I believe it was in Matthew 25, verse 30, where outer darkness was mentioned. And so I'm curious as to the, uh, your thoughts, both Tommy and Charles, uh, on this question. Does outer darkness always mean hell? With a specific focus on Matthew 8 here, which I think is an interesting verse but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so for this one, why don't we start with Charles, since Tommy just had the last word on the discussion. Yeah, so if, if outer darkness comes to mean hell, I'm fine with that. But right now, uh, I don't think it necessarily means... I, I like the idea of the darkness outside, uh, based on certain contexts. You know, so I'm I'm open to either one, honestly. Uh, it, you know, it, I don't think it really changes my theology in any aspect. It just uh, it's just unpacking one illustra uh one m metaphor that's in scripture. You know, if it's referring to hell, it's referring to hell. If it's not, then it's referring to something that relates to missing out on a certain privilege or blessing even though you're saved. And then what would be your 
current understanding on outer darkness in Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There should be whip, whip, gnashing of teeth. My current understanding is based on wherever it says the least and the great that are in the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. I would say the children of the kingdom would refer to believers. And so it's possible for believers to be outside of the banquet rejoicing imagery that's being used for the Messianic banquet and miss out on ruling and reigning with Christ. That's my current view. And then the weeping and gnashing the teeth is the deep regret, you know, for missing out on the party. I appreciate it, Charles. Uh, Pastor Tommy, floor is yours. Yeah, so I um, I believe the outer darkness is a picture of hell. For sure, every time you see outer darkness mentioned, anyone who's cast into outer darkness, they will go to hell. hell. Uh, it literally says in Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There should be weeping or there should be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And whenever you see that kind of language, the weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, the weeping and gnashing of teeth being cast out of the kingdom, cast in the furnace of fire, these things are all symbolic of hell. But what you could say literally too, it's kind of referring to um, when he's telling the Jews, they're going to be cast out of the kingdom. You know, obviously, ultimately that leads to hell, but he's also showing too just their removal from the things of God, because even though Israel was not saved, you know, not everybody had soul salvation that was of Israel. They did have the kingdom. They had the things of the kingdom. They had the temple. They had the oracles of God. They had the land. They had all those things. But what happened? They lost all of that. It was all taken from them. And, and what do we see him doing today? The most famous site for Jews in Israel is the wailing wall where they literally go outside the area where they walled off from where their temple, where they believe their temple used to be. And what do they do? They weep and they wail. And what's going on? They want that ministry back. They want that kingdom back. They want the temple back, but they don't understand Jesus Christ finished with those things. And they were told in Hebrews chapter 13 to follow him without the camp, bearing his reproach, just like they would take that scapegoat sacrifice and they would take it outside the camp. Christ was that sacrifice for us. And they were told to follow him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Who would that reproach come from? From unbelieving Jews. But that, what are they doing? Every time they're praying at that wall, that's their back to Jesus Christ. And so they're figurative. I, I think figuratively, the wailing wall is outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the good thing about that outer darkness, if they would turn around and turn away from that wall and look to Jesus, they could live and be saved. But if they don't, if they remain in that spiritual condition of obsessing with the things of the temple, they will be cast into hell. So it is, it's a, it's a figurative thing that it's giving, but for sure it represents people going to hell every time thank you tommy appreciate it charles was there anything you wanted to respond to there yeah i would just say that um the furnace of fire is the additional element that's mentioned in matthew 13 and i do take that passage to refer to hell 
I'm just saying the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness in itself it does not technically have to refer to hell. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would agree that the furnace of fire is referring to hell. So I see right now I see two and Dillo agrees with this. I mean, uh, his analysis analysis of it is the Ma- Matthew 25, the one we talked about tonight and that passage there are the two passages where outer darkness is related to hell. Okay, thank you. Uh, Charles, was there a quick final word you wanted to make, Tommy, before we move on? Yeah, I wish all these people would stop calling me a preterist. I find that insulting. (laughs) That's all I had to say. I I just want to talk to the chat. I got called one one last night in, in my debate preparation. I wish they would learn what one is before they call me that. We're going to get Tommy and Charles versus the live chat. There you go. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's, it's been it's been quite the chat tonight. In the chat, let's make sure we're focused on attacking arguments and not not the guests. Or uh, okay, so let's. I'm looking at all these questions. And I'm trying to figure out which ones might be the most relevant. Um, we'll get this one up. Professing preterist. There we go. Uh, he's uh, here's a true preterist right here. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the new heavens and new earth. And the resurrection of the dead was, was in 70 AD to professing predator. So he's coming at you, uh, Tommy. So feel free to respond however you'd like to. So he says, so contrary to Psalm 22, Zechariah 12.10, Daniel 9, so on and so forth, and Isaiah 46.53, are you saying God can be taken by surprise? No. <laughs> I don't know why he thinks I think that um i I, and and maybe he's thinking that because you know jesus didn't find what he was supposed to find uh at his coming but um i i I don't think god can be taken by surprise god knew exactly what was going to happen and so and so understand this in the bible you can find prophecies that prophesy exactly what happened god always knew it was going to happen the book of acts concludes when the disciples finally figured out not to the end of the book of acts that israel was not going to be saved what did they say well spake isaiah and then they quoted a prophecy about isaiah uh, from isaiah about israel being blind and having ears not hearing i won't be able to quote that exactly right god so god knew what was going to happen what i'm saying is in, in those covenants and in those in, in many of the things that God gave the pro, the prophets, when Israel was restored to the land, when they rebuilt their temple, there were some additional instructions that was given them during that time. And, and so understand, with those instructions they were given, promises were made that would come if they did those things. And so even though God knew they weren't going to do those things, it doesn't mean God's not going to come and still do his part that, you know, he said he would do. God said the Messiah, he had something he was going to do. They had something they were supposed to do. Jesus came. Not only did Jesus do all the things that he was supposed to do as the Messiah, but he even did the things that they were supposed to do. You know what? The, the sons of Levi, like we see in Matthew Malachi 3, They didn't offer up an acceptable sacrifice, but you know what Jesus did? He took on the priesthood. He was made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you know what he did? He offered up himself 
as an acceptable sacrifice. While Israel is not obedient, Jesus was obedient. And so Jesus kept the covenant. Jesus fulfilled the covenant. And so all those things that were promised to Israel, if they would do all the things that God told them to do, they can still be claimed if they will believe on Christ because he was the true Israel and he did all those things. And so, um, so for sure, God wasn't surprised by anything that took place. So I don't know, maybe I said something in a poor way to give off that idea, but I don't think that for two seconds. Appreciate that uh, response and clarification, Pastor. Charles, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think what he's hearing is this. He's like, well, well, God expected a bride and, and you know, didn't find one. But okay. just because language is described that way doesn't mean anything. That's just God's expectation. That language yeah. is used throughout all the Bible. I should have said he was looking. Yeah. So going back to salvation, the kingdom, all these concepts related to a decree or, you know, I believe that everything was determined. I'm not going into salvation being election and all that, but I'm just saying God's plans unfolding in time that he made before. So, but the expectation is for us to understand the responsibility of what's going on. That That's the only thing I can bring clarification to that. In other words, Professor Preterus is not understanding customer merchants. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I no, I agree with what you're saying because God expects people to get saved, but doesn't mean everybody's going to, you know. So I don't think those people are surprising him when they don't. Appreciate those responses, gentlemen. Okay, question for both now from Clint Little. So he says, Jesus says the kingdom in Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom is future, and we see Christians were translated or moved into his kingdom in Colossians 1.13. What other kingdom do we... So I think Clint is arguing from an amillennial position that says we're in the millennial reign currently, is, is my understanding. Yeah, it's uh, true Christ. Okay. So, Charles, did you want to start then? Yeah. Um, so Colossians is one of the passages that I used to use to describe the church as a kingdom. But actually what I think happens is that whenever you get saved, you're qualified for the inheritance in the kingdom. And that could be a positional inheritance. In other words, it's one of the blessings that you receive at salvation. So uh, you enter into that sphere is how I relate to that. And I agree the kingdom is future, but the questioner doesn't believe the kingdom is future. And I think he believes probably that Jesus Christ is not physically coming back or uh, visibly coming back as well. So there's issues there. Appreciate it, Charles. Tommy, over to you. And we've also got your biggest fan, SoCal Preston, in the building. So welcome to the chat, David. <laughs> Check it out, David. You, you've you never seen a chart that put good. That, that biblically accurate. Biblically accurate and creative. <laughs> Eat your heart out. You stink. I'm awesome. All right. Uh, back, to, <laughs> back to the subject. Um yeah, so Colossians 1.13, um, yeah, that goes along with the fact that we are in a, a spiritual kingdom. The, ki the kingdom is spiritual right now. and uh, But uh, at the same time, you know, as a premillennialist, you know, premillennialists all will agree that there is a, a literal kingdom. I mean, for, for example, Jesus prophesied that he was going to go away uh, and that he was going to come again. But there's, there's a multiple... Uh, ways he's going to come back. One, he said, 
I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the comforter. He will come unto you. And then later in that passage, he said, and I will come to you referring to, you know, through, through the Holy spirit. So Jesus Christ, he came at the day of Pentecost, but through the Holy spirit. But we also believe he's going to come in like manner as they saw him going to heaven physically. That's something that's to come. So Jesus, Jesus already turned spiritually, you know, at Pentecost, but he's going to return physically one of these days too. And there's plenty of prophecies on that. And so understand since he returned, uh, his kingdom has come his king, but it's spiritual. But when he comes physically, then his kingdom will be physical. And so I think Colossians uh, 1.13 is, is an example of that. And, you know, um, and Charles earlier asked me about, you know, some, kind of some clarification uh, on the ah, stink, and I, and I went off of it. But there are several references in the book of Acts to uh, them preaching about the kingdom of God. And it's not always, uh, it's not always to Jews either where they would talk about these things because, you know, I think at that point they understood the spiritual uh, at aspect of it. And so, uh, but, but Colossians is one of those verses that, you know, he wanted uh, me to point out if we got to it. Okay. I appreciate it. Uh, Pastor. So that's a question for both. And therefore let's move on to the next one that comes in from let's see here uh question for tommy so actually he put this more in a question for, oh here we go so from kurt wrestler to tommy how does your interpretation relate to the three future questions of the disciples back in matthew 24 3. um i'll so basically, yeah. So when they said, "What shall be this? Uh, when shall these things be?" Well, what things are they talking about? The things he talked about in Matthew twenty-three. He prophesied destruction of Jerusalem. He said, "Your house is left unto you desolate." The blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zacharias are going to come on this generation. He said, and so they they want to know when those things were going to be, and the sign of his coming, and of the end of the world, and so. Um, I believe, you know, that he goes through the events here, you know, here he's given the events and, uh, chapter Matthew chapter 24, he talks about things of the first century. He also talks about things concerning his coming in power and glory. And so when he's in Matthew chapter 25, this is just further up, you know, he goes into parables again, uh, basically, uh, outlining why Israel got in trouble what their failure was and understand the disciples what they didn't hear these prophecies on Jerusalem and just immediately get it and accept it. The book of acts starts out with it, with the disciples desperately trying to get Israel to repent of killing the Messiah because they understood that judgment was coming on their city. They love their city. Go read Daniel nine. When those 70 years of weeks of desolations were pronounced, he was asking God to not do it. They loved their city. They love they loved Jerusalem, but God told them, no, it's coming. And the disciples desperately tried to get Jerusalem saved spiritually and physically. And that's where some people get confused on some stuff in, in Acts. They were trying to get a physical salvation out of them. However, 
they weren't going to get a physical salvation without a soul salvation. So you definitely see that aspect too. But, um, but you know, obviously they, uh, they didn't fully understand a lot of those things, but yeah. So I, I think what I'm saying about those parables, you know, lines up just fine. Appreciate the response. Charles floor is yours. If you had any thoughts. Yeah. Um, so he asked, you know, what will be the, the, it's related to the destruction of the temple. It's related to uh, his coming and the sign of the end of the world or end of the age, uh, you know, depending on the translation of the word. But you ask, how does it relate? Well, I think my view does relate to it because it is describing how things happened in the tribulation, which referred to his coming. But also there is a secondary application that could have been true for 70 AD, you know. Uh, being prepared would mean flee to the mountains, you know, like Luke talks about and, and other things like that. So I, I could see that they need to both be prepared and set, needed to be prepared in 70 AD. And I think in the future, in Revelation chapter 12, when they flee to the wilderness, whenever, in my view, where the Antichrist, you know, declares himself as God in the temple and they recognize that they made a pact with the devil, so to speak, you know, so that's it. Appreciate it, Charles. Uh, Tommy, question was for you. You can have the last word if you'd like it. Uh, no, I think I got all I want to say on that. Okay, good job, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Next one is now for you, Charles. So Ron Hauser, question geared to Charles. You made a distinction and mentioned the Jews coming back into understanding. Are Jews related by the flesh? And how does that coincide with Galatians 3? And Romans 2, verses 28 to 29. It's a good thing I know these passages. Um, so I take Romans 2 to talk about uh, the Jew inward is related to a Jewish believer. That's all it's talking about is a Jewish believer. Galatians 3 about uh, Abraham faith or whatever. There's a principle that's throughout is that whether you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, the principle of Abrahamic faith is still in play. Now, what typically happens is people will say, well, we're Abraham's seed. And therefore, uh, well, the first thing to understand is that the children of Abraham is a broader concept than Israel. Because Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jake, Jacob's name was changed to Israel and it changed to the 12 tribes and all of that. So the promise of Abraham is wider and broader than Israel. So even if Israel has been temporarily set aside, which is my view, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, as Galatians 3 argues, is still in play. And the promise is that an ultimate seed would be a blessing. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. So I take that passage as saying that we receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant that are channeled through Jesus Christ. And that the new covenant is an extension of that by which that occurs. Okay, thank you, Charles. Tommy, uh, floor is yours if you had any thoughts. Yeah, well, let me just kind of throw this in there. Something that we have to understand, too, about that first century is um, you did have Jews who um, were the people of God, were the chosen people, had the ministry, all those things. Um, there was a time of transition where they needed to make a decision. Do we Are we going to accept the Messiah or not? Those who accepted the Messiah, they continued being the people of God, and they got you know, and they were saved uh, spiritually, maintain their inheritances, all those things. 
we don't have any people like that today. You know, there they don't they don't exist. There are no people living. There haven't been for almost two thousand years who were ever under that old covenant and were the people of God. And so, um, you know, there are no so there are no physical Jews. Okay, and and now let me say this: there are again spiritual examples of unbelieving Jews like we see back then, but it, their DNA don't matter. If you claim to have some kind of righteousness by the law, if you claim to be a physical descendant of Abraham, if you claim to be of Israel, and your your claim and your you claim there's a Messiah and it's not Jesus Christ, mark it down. You are of Ishmael, like Paul talked about in Galatians chapter four. And any because because any attempt that you're making to connect yourself in that way to Abraham without Jesus Christ is an attempt to do it through the law. And if you are doing it through the law, promises of no effect, you have no claim on anything. And that's what Galatians three and, and Romans two are all about. And so um, just kind of a extra thing there. Thank you, Tommy. Charles, you can have the quick final word since the question was for you. Uh, no, uh, I just point out that I think, you know, I understand why we use the language uh, there of Ishmael or whatever, but I don't think necessarily Israel wasn't saved, you know, so I don't think the distinction is at the level of salvation. I think it's related to faithfulness, who's faithful and who's not. And uh, it's like, who's a true American, you know, mm -hmm. someone that is patriotic, uh, puts a flag out in their front yard or someone that serves in the military, someone that pays their taxes, you know. What makes a person a true American or a American inwardly? You know? yeah. Well, like, you know, that's a, that's a good point. Can I, if I can make an illustration, sure. what if America got defeated? Let's say, you know, China went and just wiped us out, took out the capital, set up their own government, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, and then 2000 years pass or let's just, let's just say a hundred years pass. Okay. Um, what would we need to do to become America again and to claim we are America? You know, and what we would have to do, we would have to get back under the system that started this country. We would have to get back under the Constitution. And if we went and we accepted a constitutional form of government again, that was in line, uh, you know, with our laws and things that we had before, then we could say we're America. We made a comeback now. So for Israel to make a comeback, you know what they have to do? They have to accept Jesus. That's all because that's what their covenant said to do. Their covenant said when that prophet like Moses came, they were supposed to receive him. They rejected him. They were destroyed. So if they are going to make a comeback as a physical people, they've got to do it by accepting Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. What happens if a whole bunch of physical Jews go and get saved? And guess what? Then they're one of us. They're with us. So I, I just say all that to show how we're, we're Israel. You know, there, there's, there's no, there's no way around that. And we have credentials. We have the word of God. We have the Holy spirit. And, uh, and therefore, you know, we're all good and we are of the tribe of Ephraim. So Kyle Preston. 
And I'll can let I, you scratch your head about that. <laughs> can I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead. So in my view, Israel gets spiritually saved or positionally saved during the tribulation when they call on uh, whenever they believe in the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But until they call on the name of the Lord to be physically delivered from the Antichrist, which is what I view Romans 10, 9 to be about, because calling on the name of the Lord is something that believers do. They're not temporally delivered and therefore they will not receive the blessings and they won't receive the constitution, which will be the specific application of the new covenant to them. You know, uh, there's a similarity going on in the church in the church, but it's not the same thing as that. So I think the constitution and the government, the theocracy will be brought back, but it's only on the condition of Israel faithfully serving during the tribulation by calling on the name of the Lord. Well, understand it's impossible for Israel to get saved. Ishmael would have to get saved so they could become Israel. Israel is saved. Well, I understand. You see how that, doesn't, you see how that. that doesn't make sense? Because again, Israel, Israel, you know, the, the, the physical nation got destroyed. And so now, now Jews can be saved, you know, or like professing, professing Jews can be saved. Professing Israelis can, can be saved. But they're 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 Ishmael. Well, what I mean is I'm I'm relate and I take the 144,000 is literal 12,000 from each tribe. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are, but God can gather. And, them. and you see how that doesn't make any sense either, because, again, the law is is very important. And and do you remember, man, I never have this passage ready for me in in Ezra and Nehemiah. You have that passage where uh, there were certain people that were put away from the priesthood, they were considered polluted because they couldn't show their genealogy. They weren't, they weren't able to do that. Part of being of that physical nation, you were required to show your genealogies, your pedigrees. Those things were all throughout the old Testament. They mattered because that's, that's how you had claim on the inheritance. Those things were very important. You know, we read long passages that frankly, you know, if I, I'm just going to admit, are pretty boring where it's giving names, where it's giving borders of land. Why? Because that was their title. That was their deed to the land. And they needed to remain close to God, obedient to the law, so they could preserve that inheritance. And they didn't do it. They, they failed and they lost all those things because of their disobedience to God. And so understand, you can't be, you cannot claim to, it, there is, there's no way biblically, legally, according to the Bible, to claim a lineage based on DNA. You can't just say God, God knows who they are. God expected them to know who they were. God expected them to keep track of those things, and they did pretty good for a long time. But there were people who didn't, and they were they were put out. Mm -hmm. And and so the, this this claim of you know these twelve tribes like they're still out there. I, I don't know how anyone can take the Old Testament serious and think that they're still out there. I think the resurrected uh, saints theory, and I think it's a theory. I don't think it's proven, but I think it's I think it's a great theory. And I and so because uh, again, it's it's not about it was never about DNA. They they were to prove these things, and they they can't do it. Well, the thing about the whole DNA thing is that it, it that assumes that theocracy is in existence. 
they could keep track of their DNA through records because of the theocracy being in existence. There's no theocracy in existence right now. Therefore, it would not be a precondition for uh, those things to be proven for them to, to be identified as Israel. Rather, what would happen is during the tribulation, if we take it literal, God will gather them. If we relate it to Ezekiel and all of that, God will bring them back in belief and he sets his seal upon them. And so I, I think it's something spiritual. It's supernatural. It's only known to him. Uh, now, they'll know it because they'll believe the two witnesses and things like that. But it's not something that's going to happen in, during this time. So that's how I deal with the DNA aspect of things. I don't think it's about DNA either. Right. It's about well, God's sovereign choice of a nation. They just happen to be that, that DNA. Well, no, if, but if we're talking about tribes... It, you know, we're we're talking if we're talking about physical tribes, we're going off the law. It's Nehemiah seven sixty four. It says these sought their register among those. This is after they've returned out from the captivity. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, were they as as polluted put from the priesthood? It doesn't even say for sure that they were polluted, but because they didn't have records, they were considered as polluted. And there yeah. is a very good reason that Matthew and Luke show the genealogy of Christ. And it was it was to show his legal claim, one, to the throne of David, but two, to the, the inheritances and the promises, because somebody had to fulfill. Somebody in Israel, in order for the promises from the Old Testament to be kept, that God made, you've got to have somebody that is not polluted, physically for the promise to be kept and who keeps the law and fulfills all these things. And Isn't guess what? That? One did Jesus. And that's why it doesn't matter anymore. That's why we, we don't, we don't worry about genealogies anymore. They literally mean nothing. What matters is, are you in Christ? And so again, we're, when we go to revelation seven and 14, these are very, what, what everyone would agree many things in revelation are figurative and symbolic but it's it's interesting the things that we choose to go ultra literal with do you know what things we choose to go ultra and i'm not saying we can never go literal i, I i'm very literal in how i interpret a lot of things but you know what's interesting it's something that i'm working on myself is when i just say something's literal and when something's not literal or figurative why how, how do i prove that and Revelation 7 and 14, you know, you know why we say th the things are literal that we do? This guy got so much stuff wrong, but yet we've still got a lot of stuff cemented in our head. So again, to, to claim an impossibility, a physical impossibility, uh, and, uh, you know, of the hundred uh, of a, you know, the interpretation that people are saying that it's like 12,000 from each tribe. The physically descend from that still here today. It's it's a physical impossibility that can't be proven where all the things before in the law, they had to be, they had to be proven. They had to have a record and those things do not exist. And I just, I think uh, people prove so much stuff about it. This future thing with Israel based on the 144,000, you know, that's in the same chapter as the rapture, let me just give you a theory. All right. This, I don't, this is just a theory, but what if revelation seven, where we have the 144,000 mentioned from, from each tribe, 
except for the tribe of Dan and uh, SoCal Preston, Ephraim. Those ones aren't mentioned. Okay, now, I'm, and I'm not gonna, I don't have time to go into the Ephraim ex explanation, but then we see a multitude that no man could number. And I do remember a prophecy that Jacob made about Ephraim that he become a multitude of nations. What if what we're seeing in Revelation 7 is more figurative and symbolic, showing how the things that God prophesied to Israel, the things that God prophesied to Abraham, that he would multiply a seed as the stars of heaven, that he would preserve his people, that there would always be a remnant of Israel, is just showing that after the resurrection, God did in fact fulfill those things. We've got, I mean, that that's a pretty good inheritance, 12,000 from each of your tribe. And then from one of those groups, you get a multitude that no man could number. Ephraim representing the Gentile uh, believers. Um, so, you know, th there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think we're all overly dogmatic about Revelation 7 and, and, and chapter 14. Well, I'm not denying a possibility, but mm. I don't think that genetics is a basis for arguing that it's impossible. Again, it's not about genetics. It's, it's no, they could, they didn't know how to prove genetics in the old Testament. They, but they did have records. They, they did have records of things and the Bible records many of those records. Do, do you but believe that they had, to have those today? You have to have that. Do you believe that they had records whenever they came out of, uh, out of Egypt? Yeah. The Bible records it. It was, and it was written in the book of the law of Moses. Right. I mean, I know that, you know, I'm talking about the 70 that came from Joseph and all of that stuff. And then, you know, the people that come out. But my point is, is that the theocracy technically did not even exist yet. It was when the theocracy existed that those qualifications, and then you brought up about the priesthood, a disqualification from the priesthood doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you're not an Israelite. That's just a disqualification from a particular ministry right. because you can't prove that you're a Levite. Right. I mean, but it, right. So the, but the, and then the Levite, you know, their inheritance was the things of God and they lost their inheritance because they couldn't prove their lineage. And so, yeah, that was specifically about the Levites, but the same application could be made for all the other tribes who had certain claims and inheritances. If they, if they lose those things, then they then they can't claim those things. They would be considered as as polluted, and that's what you have in Jesus' day too. You have the Jews, the Jews, the ones of the Southern Kingdom who had done a better job of maintaining their purity, and where you don't see much when it comes to those other tribes of the Northern Kingdom because they had gotten taken captive years before. And those were the outcasts of Israel. Those were the Samaritans, you know, people that were considered polluted. But, you know, you did have a group, those Pharisees. These were the guys, they could give you the record of their genealogies. And, and, but, um, and they were pretty impressed with themselves, but they also didn't have faith. So guess what? Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't, he didn't care. He didn't care about that. Jesus don't care about bloodlines. I mean, John the Baptist himself said, say not in yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. God's able to these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Was he just getting mouthy there? Or was he, was he, was he telling the truth? I mean, God told Moses, 
hey, get out of my way. I'm going to wipe these people out. I'll just make of you a great nation. If if God needs, you know, 12,000 from the different tribes, okay, of physical people that are that are alive today or whatever, I mean, you know, he can get them where he wants to. They, it doesn't have to be a DNA. And even, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't about genetics because you could be circumcised and keep the Sabbath and you could be a part of the land. And what did the Bible say? You would be a part of the tribe that you dwelled in. And that passage, I think, was in Ezekiel um, when it was giving, I, I think that's where it was, where it was giving instructions for Israel when they return back to the land and rebuild their temple. And they were supposed to be expanding the kingdom and so, so and, and have people from from all over the world. But uh, they didn't. You know, so the proselytes they had, they were making them twofold more a child of hell. Do you think it's possible that during the tribulation that there are some Jews around and then there are Gentiles that join up with that and therefore they make up the tribes? Is that possible? I mean, can we have still a numerical accounting for it? In other words, does the theocracy start in the tribulation? If so, then that would meet your criteria for the record. And uh, that would even allow for what you're saying about the Gentiles being part of that tribe. And therefore, you wouldn't have to depend uh, just on bloodline, you know. Well, I don't think the theocracy is going to start until, you know, Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives. But um, but again, I just I don't I don't see Revelation seven as. um you know, something that is, is demanding 144,000 people of a certain race be saved. I just, I, I, I see all I see in revelation chapter seven is him, you know, putting a protection on 144,000 people. Doesn't say what they're doing. Uh, you know, it doesn't call them witnesses or anything like that in chapter seven in chapter 14, you see him standing on Mount Zion with the lamp. Now that has to be the heavenly Mount Zion because you know pre-tribbers will agree Jesus hasn't coming back yet. So what in the world are they all doing with Jesus in Revelation chapter fourteen? You know, and uh, and so I mean, honestly, we, I think we've inserted so much stuff, you know, that we've that these guys are going to do in the future. You know, people are saying things that just aren't, they're not even in the Bible, you know? And so I just, I, all I think they are, I think they are showing, I, I think, I think they're people who have already been saved. And I don't think there's, I don't think there's only 144,000 or 12,000 from each tribe that got saved. I think it's just, I think they're symbolic and just showing God's fulfillment to preserve a remnant uh, from Jacob, like he's like he said he would, and um, you know I'm not a big numerology guy. I don't know, but I think there's a lot of good theories on that. I just don't. I don't think the 144,000 prove anything, and I think people are using them to prove this, you know, future revival with the Jews after the rapture. I I don't believe I don't believe that's going to happen. I Gentlemen. question any major revival after the rapture. 
I appreciate the um, second kind of mini discussion in this uh, greater event. This has been awesome. Uh, Pastor, I want to make sure that you have some voice left for your uh, preaching tomorrow. And so <laughs> real quick, I've got three super chats from Pseudonym. And so let's just do a couple minute power round and honor those gifts. And then we're going to wrap it up. This has been a really great event. Uh, many people in the chat pointing out how rewatchable this is. And so that was part of the goal is to have one of those go-to comprehensive uh, videos on the parables of Matthew 25, because I, I don't think there's enough out there on them. And so this has been a, a good few hour, basically exchange two views. Great discussion, gentlemen. So, okay. Pseudonym, $5 super chat. Thank you so much. He asks, would you both agree that it's the father's kingdom? Before John, where the focus became my kingdom, as the banquet is based on the will of the Father. Um, gentlemen, did you have any thoughts on on what pseudonym is saying there? I think I think Jesus just refers to it both ways. I mean, I think his father's kingdom and his kingdom are one and the same. So I think it's just, you know, there's a I think there's a lot of examples like that in the Bible where Jesus speaks sometimes on behalf of himself sometimes on behalf of the father sometimes on, on the holy spirit again in the passage where he's talking to his disciples he referred to the holy spirit coming as he and then in another spot he said i so um i i think that's all that's about okay the, thank you yeah go ahead charles so i mean I do believe that the son reigns during the millennial kingdom and then he will turn over the kingdom in first Corinthians 15 to the father. But that doesn't mean he ceased ruling. It, it's using the imagery. I think of like in the old Testament, wherever you had a father and the son reigning on the throne at the same time, you know, a co-regency idea. So uh, I think what he's doing is he's going from the, the, what people call the Lord's prayer, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he's saying it's thy, so it's the father's kingdom. Um, I think that's what he was trying to get at. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. Next one from pseudonym, $10 super chat. Appreciate it. Quick question. He says where I'm guessing he's trying to say there, where in Matthew 25, it's not until Matthew chapter 26, where the new covenant comes into place, AKA the last supper, so on and so forth. Do parables change when the, <laughs> he speaks in riddles kind of with these questions, but when the, it's all stuck in Judaism versus futurism, any thoughts brothers? Well, I have context for this because this was brought up in my stream last night. It's okay. I can go first. Um, so he thinks that just because Jesus Christ mentions the new covenant in Matthew 26, that that somehow refutes our interpretation of Matthew 25. Well, the new covenant's mentioned in Jeremiah and Ezekiel 36, at least implicitly. So if your argument is, is that the new covenant didn't occur until Jesus mentioned it, then it was mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, I agree that the, that Christ's blood paid for it, uh, but I don't see how his argument even follows. Tommy? I, I agree with Charles on that. I think he's right. Okay, cool. And the last one for the night, pseudonym, thank you for the support. $5 super chat. In the parable of the virgins crying, Lord, Lord, are they believers and stuck in free grace? So there's 144,000 saved plus 10 virgins. They ask for oil. I don't really understand what he's asking, but maybe you gentlemen do. And so feel free to speak to it. 
he's adding 144,000 plus the 10 virgins because the the 144,000 that didn't know a man, and he's saying that, uh, I agree with Pastor Mamurchi on this. Revelation didn't exist at that time. And, you know, that the text can't mean what it didn't mean to the original audience. So I agree that and when we trace progressive revelation, we should consider what they knew. Now, the thing about prophecy, a lot of times it's topical and then late, we get the peaks of everything. And later on, we get to find out what's in the valleys and that stuff. But I don't think the intention is to add up, you know, doing math. I'm, I'm horrible at math. If salvation or sanctification is based on math, I'm out of there. <laughs> two plus two, Charles. Yeah, <laughs> you know th this is a subject I'm I'm far from an expert in. But um, here's the thing about the virgin, the virgin aspect of the hundred forty four thousand. Um, if you remember when they fir God first gave the law, God actually demanded everyone's firstborn to serve from the firstborn male child. Um, they were to serve the Lord. God later, uh, before, um, not long after that, it's, it's a very strange thing. I don't fully, I don't fully understand why it went down this way, but I think it's a good study for somebody to do one of these days. Maybe I'll, I'll figure it all out, but he originally demanded the firstborn, but then later he replaced the firstborn with the tribe of Levi instead. And they didn't have to get their firstborn, but there was a group of firstborns that they did originally, uh, choose from the different tribes. And so I think, in that Judaism and in a lot of the things they had, you know, there were something special um, about, you know, people who were considered non-polluted and virgins and who had like a physical sanctification about them and a physical purity about them that made them special, made them sanctified, made them, it, it enabled them for special use Um you know, for the things of God, they had their Nazarite vows and things that they would do to set themselves apart. And, and those were very holy things. Those were very special things uh, that they did. Well, here's the thing about that. The blood of Christ and the cleansing and, and the sanctification that it gives, it gives us all the things that, you know, people couldn't get through the law, or you could say it give it, it achieves all the things that the things of the law would achieve. So when it comes to, you know, these, uh, you know, these virgins, you know, are we talking literally or are we speaking of something too that, you know, you know, just as showing a special sanctification and, you know, and were there people like that, that, you know, lived in that way. If you look at the first group of Firstborns that they chose, I added up one time. I was hoping it was going to add up to 144,000, uh, but it actually came up to around 12. But I, they only did that for a short time. So again, the uh, the virgins thing, we don't think about that stuff anymore. We're so used to grace, the blood of Christ, the sanctification we have in that. But a lot of those things in the Old Testament, uh, they were very special, but ultimately they were to point people you know, to Christ and help them understand the holiness of God's law. Very good. Okay, gentlemen, that uh, we've gone through the questions, the super chat, the pseudonym, appreciate the support. You're a good sport.
And so, okay, this has been a great two views event. I really appreciate the time, uh, Tommy and Charles. I know how busy you both are, as a matter of fact. And so I appreciate you both being willing to engage this very heavy topic, a technical topic, but an important one on a Saturday night, especially. So uh, God bless you both for that. Any quick final words or final thoughts? You know, Charles, let's start with you again. Thanks so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. I've got your channel linked in the description box for people to check out. So go ahead. Yeah. Uh, once again, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, I wasn't really passionate about the debate because, you know, we're both free grace. I'm interested about it and it made me challenge some things. But I look at it as like a window into future discussions because I feel like that a lot of the, the eschatological issues are coming from other passages in both of our systems that are really leading to our conclusions in Matthew 25. And so, you know, maybe we need to explore some of that in the future. Uh, God bless. Charles, thank you very much. It's a great in-house discussion. It's okay to have differing views on eschatology. And it's it's also, I think, important to come together as, as brothers and discuss these issues. So, Tommy, uh, over to you. I appreciate you doing this, especially the night before you're going to basically be preaching all day. And so I think this is a great event. And you as well. I've got your channels linked in the description box for, for people to check out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I had a great time. I appreciate Charles and, uh, you know, good attitude, good discussion. And I have only scratched the surface when it comes to this stuff. I don't, I I've still got a lot to learn in a lot of these areas where we're talking, but I, I do believe that these things that I'm, I'm talking about are things that are going to help unlock a lot of great truths and help people understand things where I, I feel like dispensationalism, um, is really, I always say it's it's putting up a brick wall in people's theology. I think it causes a lot of confusion and lack of consistency. And if, if I could get people talking about these parables uh, without the dispensational lens and uh, understanding some of these first century applications, I, I think it will uh, really knock the floodgates open uh, of truth. And so I just want to advance the discussion on this. And so I enjoyed doing it tonight. And it was, I had a good time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Great final words and final thoughts, gentlemen. I'm going to let you uh, both go and enjoy the rest of your nights and the rest of the weekend. I appreciate it. I'm going to stick around just for a little bit, going over some reminders and announcements. So Tommy, Charles, my brothers, God bless the both of you. Great event and uh, event. And we'll chat soon. Thank you.